This is Space Cats Peace Turtles, the unofficial podcast for Fantasy Flight's Twilight Imperium. Episode 297, The History of Twilight Imperium, First Edition. Music by Ben Prunty, featuring Matt Martins and Hunter Donaldson. Is Hunter going to go full David Attenborough on this one? <laughs> no. Or like not Mike, That's not you're going to be Michael, Michael Palin and Terry Jones doing their yes, weird history. I was just giving it a little bit of class. Just a little <laughs> bit of dignity. And you have to go straight for jokes. What about a no joke episode? Can't we do that? Can't we deliver unto our listeners mm-hmm. who, who I love very much yeah. just some raw information? A proper being listening all. experience. Yes. Listen, we're not comedians. We're not. <laughs> listen, Matt, I hate to tell you, we're getting older, and uh-huh. I get worried sometimes that we're not anything. You know what yeah. I mean? Right. What are we? You know what I mean? I don't want to get too deep into it too early, but like, I'm starting to feel like I might not be anything. Hunter, this is literally what children are for. <laughs> I'm a father. That doesn't mean much, but it means I just get to, I get a label. I get to have that now. I hope, know? I hope the audience and your therapist, your non-existent therapist heard what you just said. <laughs> That's and not I would anything. like, <laughs> like, I was like, let's get existential for a moment. And you were like, existential i had a kid for that purpose i had i brought a person into this world just so i could say oh there's a reason for me to be here (laughs) just to fill a vacuum you know wow it's just right there on the surface with you these days just right at the top we're all dust bunnies in the vacuum of life no need to explore matt's character to find what's going on with him he'll just tell you (laughs) he'll just be like i got it right here I don't know who I am, so I became a father for that reason. Can't wait to can't wait for Molly to get older, and I will let her know. Here's the thing: you don't you don't do it for that reason, but after you've done it, you realize that's a reason <laughs> that became uh-huh. the reason. That's the uh-huh. idea behind kids. Well, I will. I'll go ahead and tell you this: I'm gonna. I, I think I will will rough it without having to bring somebody else into this. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not going to recruit Drag some random down. person and force them into my unknowingness, you know? <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to stand here and deal with it on my own, okay? Well, you let me know how that went in 20 years. It's going years. awesome, okay? <laughs> I'm standing in my bedroom right now, cloaked in a blanket because yeah. it's cold in here. All right? It's cold in here in the middle of the day. All right. It's going great. Hunter's really leaned into the tactile experiences of his unknowingness. I yeah. can trust what I feel right Listen, now. I have a I am wrapped in a blankie. All right. I'm doing fine. Follow me on Instagram if you want to see how well I'm doing. At Hungry Hunty. Follow me <laughs> and watch my stand-up clips. People are always asking me, how do I watch your stand-up? It's like, Google me. Like, look for me. Just look for me. I am out there. You can find me. There used to there was a there was a major league baseball player who was also named Hunter Donaldson. And let me tell you, I'm crushing him mm-hmm. on the search engine stuff. All right. Yeah. Search me up. 
You want to have some of it. What are we doing today, Hunter? Today's a fun, uh, a fun little uh, sort of sojourn episode. I'm excited. Well, it was going to be serious, and then we kind of messed it up in the intro there. But yeah, it. <laughs> we are doing. We've been talking about doing this for a long time, and this is part of an ongoing series of which we have already sort of dipped our toes into. Yeah. Um. We gave you all. We played a game of Twilight Imperium First Edition, and we gave you all our hot takes mm. on how it felt to play it. But now it is time. To overview first edition and talk Mm -hmm. about the history of it, what each expansion added, mechanically get in the weeds a little bit. Instead of being all surface, this time we're going deep and we're summarizing. Yay. Uh, I will say this, too. In prepping this episode, it made me want to get one more game of first edition in before we move on. And we've said this before, but like it's now we have to play with all the items turned on. You know what I mean? Like we need, we got to do a session where it's like, okay, let's do every inch of first edition in one game. And let me tell you, as you'll learn in today's episode, that is a tall order. Yeah. (laughs) That's a thing and a half. Okay. There is a lot to this game. Each expansion added, uh, I would say, an unnecessary amount, almost an insecure amount of detail. As if CTP was like, expansions, everybody hates those. I really got to justify these. (laughs) Uh, But I think we wanted to start, or I wanted to start with... um, a bit of background on just the development of Twilight Imperium. And some of this is pulled from... I mean, you you can discern a lot of this stuff from various interviews, including our interview with Christian T.P. Peterson, uh, all an, what, 198 episodes Did you just ago? call him Christian P. Teterson? Is that what you Probably. just called him? I did. <laughs> Christian? You said Christian P. Teterson. <laughs> sure. Why not? Yeah, uh, that's correct. But uh, in, in our interview with him in our 100th episode, some of this stuff was detailed, and I've sort of pulled from a few other places and, and sort of... I, I just want to paint you a picture of what the world was like when first edition released in 1997. Ooh, yeah, take us back. Take yeah. us back to 1995. <laughs> the the key here is around 1995. So uh, so people might be aware of the company Avalon Hill. It was a very popular war gaming company. They made lots and lots of war games, Axis and Allies, but also many, many others, uh, like throughout the 60s and 70s and everything. And it was a pretty popular genre for a while i can't speak at length about like how big of a deal wargaming was as a, a thing but what i do know is all the reports will tell you it had been dying and dying and mm-hmm. dying and dying for de- for decades so by the mid 90s like there wasn't really much of interest going on there were hobbyists obviously there were wargamers uh, out there but it was not a relevant sector and Avalon Hill's parent company had been like trying to sell Avalon Hill since 1995, basically. So that like that's the state of sort of where this whole hobby was is like, listen, right. we're just trying to we're selling for parts at this point, anything we can take. And they didn't manage to do it until Hasbro bought them in actually 1998, which is a year after Twilight Imperium release. But like the nail was already in the coffin. Right. Uh, computer games were taking over, basically, is actually the idea. And there was even a whole legal like battle about uh, the rights over the name Civilization, because there was Sid right. Meier's Civilization, and then there was a different thing called Civilization, and like that was part of sort of Avalon Hill's decline basically and even their computer game sales were like crashing and burning and so like i mean you're you're literally looking at a world where 
Like, Magic the Gathering has completely taken over. It's just card games and, like, board games and nothing else matter. Uh, Settlers of Catan comes out in 95 in Germany and 96 in America and is like, oh, okay, this is maybe, like, a kind of new direction for hobby board games, this sort of lighter German fare. But, like, that we were on the precipice of that, right? So I, I would say this five-year period is like literally the lowest point you can imagine for board games really the lowest point imaginable <laughs> even <laughs> of, before so so would you, what would you say about the time before the existence of the board game at all that's is not that really actually a, low. a higher point because at least <laughs> no one's wasting their time on stupid board games the or? time before the big ba- bang is not the lowest point in the in the galaxy it is a non-existent whoa, point whoa do you think board games came about at the big bang at at, at like the beginning of of time there was the the board game (laughs) there was cosmic encounter (laughs) wow and it was good (laughs) and it was good really good actually love that game yeah i love that game uh so anyways fantasy flight was not even a board game company they were a failing comic book company uh mostly just importing european comics like weird whatever, just sci-fi and and all sorts of comic books uh, into America. Christian is a a Danish fella living in America and is is bringing European comics to America. And guess what? Nobody's buying them. (laughs) Nobody cares about the the comics that uh, Fantasy Flight is selling at this point. But uh, Christian liked board games enough to try his hand, and he liked war games. Uh, So he was just sort of mucking about designing Twilight Imperium, and he based his hex system uh off of a game called magic realm but technically like Catan was coming out at the same time or whatever but uh the idea being christian was looking for more variety right the map you 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 can rebuild it from a new way rather than like i don't know um, hunters and i's main point of contact is axis and allies so we always think of like the transition from axis and allies to twilight imperium so like even for us what we were looking for was like i want an axis and allies where like Things are different each time because I don't like just the way, the fact that a game starts the same every single time and you have like a perfect right. build order you could come to. And what if our League of Nations could like be dissolved and like different alliances could form? Like that was like the core thing you and I were after when looking for a new game. And, I, and well, it's, it feels like Christian was sort of designing that in 1998. I also just wanted there to be less stuff on the, yeah. you know, like you start a game of, well, first of all, the setup for Axis and Allies takes three or four hours on its own. You may as well just do that and then tear it down, yeah. really, because there's so many pieces required to be on the table at once. Uh, and I think that's a weird place for a board game to start. It's like yeah. you're trying to start a board game at round five when yeah. actually maybe we should start small and build up in complexity. But, yeah. you know, World War Two, you know, it has those requirements, you know, right. we got to right. We got to role play. It. it can't just be. I don't know. Can't just make a game out of it. It's got to be right. World War Two as it was. Yes. Well, and that was the thing too of the era, right? Was simulation games. The war games were meant to be simulations of actual encounters that took place. So yeah. there was a sense of like, I mean, that was always true in Axis and Allies, right? It's like I don't know. The Axis is really, or I mean, the Allies are really good in that game because, hey, guess what? Newsflash: the Axis lost the war eventually. Yeah. So like the power balances of a simulation of that are not necessarily a balanced uh, thing always. So, you know, this this was designed to be 
a more thematic simulation game. Uh, uh, war games were known for having really low interactivity. It was just like, on my turn, I do all of my things, and you sit around for a while waiting for my stuff to finish before you can finally take your turn. And Christian was like, I want it to be thematic and there's always something for you to do on other people's turns i wanted to be really involved and um especially on that thematic side like there's so much flavor text that he introduces into this like events and action cards and agendas and everything they're not just like we even see now where it's like here's the effect and here's some flavor text the the action cards of first edition are like telling you a story and they're like yeah. and like what we mean by that is this happens like the the mechanic of it is almost an afterthought to what the action card is doing <laughs> Right, and, and that's one thing that I really like about First Edition, and to kind of connect back to uh, last week's discussion about a possible future of Twilight Imperium, uh, it is way more thematic, I feel yeah. like, than we than we are at with Twilight Imperium today. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that, you know, it's like flavor text is one thing, right? Um, and I think there's a lot of really good flavor text writing in, in Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. What I think that TI1 has maybe not in writing but in like just kind of a general style or philosophy yeah. is that the flavor text is meant to just specifically like pare down and describe yeah what the effect is going to be right and sometimes i would say maybe out of a sense of fanciness the the flavor text in twilight imperium 4 doesn't exactly inform the the, yeah. the choice you're making as a player in a kind of one-to-one -one kind of way and i realize that in a way that's actually better writing but sure. sometimes simpler and more straightforward kind of can trump uh yeah. the other I, I i feel anyways yeah uh the other thing about twilight imperium was as it has always been when twilight imperium gets released it is the biggest craziest thing you've ever seen it was 80 dollars upon release which was considered astronomical for board games at the right time. like 80 dollars was like among the most expensive board games you could possibly buy so right. this was like a luxury item and that's been true with each i mean the, the ti3 coffin box that's this ridiculously huge thing ti4 released at like 150 dollars like it is known that when they decide to make a twilight imperium Sure, they want it to be a great game. They want it to be a bombastic game. That is part of the like the DNA of Twilight Imperium. Right, and it's especially bold that the industry is effectively dead at this point, and CTP is showing up being like, <laughs> I have a luxury cruise yeah, liner yeah. <laughs> for you to board, if you would like. It's very expensive. And there's Nobody's just like, using cruises anymore. <laughs> well, hey, People hate mine costs $7,000. What do Listen, you think of that? And and we can make fun of CTP all we want. Just remember who won in the end. Yeah. Us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> CTP worked so hard and believed in himself so much that he created an $80 product in a dead industry. Yeah. And now two losers can just <laughs> feed off of his work for their whole lives. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and first edition, you know, I think I had sort of strange notions about like how well it did. Because what you'll hear is that first edition saved the company, which is true. But I think it's important to not oversell it so that you understand, like, the scope of first edition. I think it's important from a historical context. First edition sold 1,500 initial copies. They, like, they they, they debuted it at a, at a game fair uh, at Origins, I think. And uh, 
you know, they, they sold out of everything they had then and they made 1,500 copies and then they eventually printed 3,000 more, right? 4,500 copies of base game first edition. That's all that exists out there in the universe, right? Yeah. So it's that's, a finite it's, number. It is a finite number and they're getting harder and harder to come by. Um, and the expansions each sold about two to 3,000 uh, is what he, I think, told us in, in our episode 100 interview. But it's like not that many copies of a thing but it was profitable enough to keep the company alive and to allow them the opportunity to sort of pivot into like let's try more board games and basically what happened is they did some first edition and then they made disc wars and if we want to say something properly saved the company disc wars saved fantasy flight like disc wars made fantasy flight like a whoa this right. is a mainstay of the board game scene this is a part of the new rise of board games right uh, it's impossible for twilight imperium to be um sort of like this huge linchpin to the company's success when again it's at a time where board games are dead right so right. it's just keeping them alive and afloat during the dead years until the market sort of started to come back right and i mean Catan is going to come in and kind yeah. of uh, boat float the rest of the industry as well. And <laughs> and Twilight Imperium, I feel like kind of boat floated there on, on yeah. that. But also it's like filling a gap. If right. Avalon Hill is gone and these war gamers have nothing new to play, uh, they're going to be looking for something. And Twilight Imperium uh, was there. What's funny is that TI is so different from all the Avalon Hill stuff on a surface level, maybe not mm -hmm. necessarily on a, on a deeper uh, mechanical level that I wonder how well they even recognized it as being one of theirs. Yeah, right. Yeah, I wonder. Um, and I think my other misconception about this time period for Fantasy Flight and like with regards to uh, Twilight Imperium, and we'll explore this more in the future, what we will eventually do episodes about second edition. So I don't want to bury the lead too much right now. But what I will say about second edition is it came like hot on the heels, right? 2000 is when right. second edition is going to come out, right? So three years later, He's already thinking about a new edition. And really, at that point, second edition is very much like a proper, just like more or less a reprinting, right? Like I mm -hmm. learned some lessons from first edition. It was made in a garage with just like anything I could muster. And second edition was one printing of like four to 5,000 copies, which is like the same number of copies that first edition actually sold. I always was under this impression that second edition was like, that's when it actually got great. But I think something Hunter and I have learned in this process is like, no, first edition was actually like a solid little thing, and we don't know yep. much about second edition yet, but I'm not sure I'm going to expect like wild developments. Like, I really do think second edition is going to be like patch notes for first edition, basically. Right. Yeah. And also first edition just contains so much. I mean, once yeah. you add, you factor in all of the expansions and it actually feels like in a way, first edition is like the most massive version mm -hmm. of TI because it still feels like even where we're at with Prophecy of Kings uh, and TI4, yeah. it still feels like we're playing actually in the boundaries that first edition established, right. which I think one thing that would be cool is for TI to actually break through those boundaries at this point. CTP yeah. is long gone and now we're <laughs> in charge. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> what, what would we do that is completely outside the bounds of, of first edition and the expansions? Yeah. I think is something interesting to think about and, and an yep. interesting way to possibly uh, expand the possibility window for yep. TI. Yeah, definitely.
Well, that's all I have for, like, just sort of the, the development history. I mean, you can go and listen to, again, episode 100. There's a bit more detail from CTP himself, and there's a lot of interviews he's given o- over the years. There's also the um, documentary that Shut Up and Sit Down made, uh, Space Lions, which was a devel- like a, a documentary about the development of 4th edition, but uh, it covers some stuff about 1st and 2nd edition um, in there. So I wanted to talk about um, the writing in this game and sort of the mentality of I don't know I guess basically where the lore of Twilight Imperium was coming from at this point uh, because I, I think we all see what fourth edition is now which is like a big story with each expansion or rulebook or codex right like a big short story mm-hmm. and then the faction sheets are like pretty long-winded descriptions of like the history of an entire species or whatever and then like every card in the game has like a little piece of flavor text right uh, uh, right and and garl shouted no stop all the blasters like whatever it's it's like little spicy <laughs> things but like it all lends to an overall flavor right where things are still interpretive but i feel like there's a lot of direction given in twilight imperium if you chose to like latch on to that you could you could like role play a faction in fourth edition so to compare that to first edition honestly when base game comes out there's like actually nothing <laughs> okay there's very i mean all of the flavor is what we described earlier it's like the action cards are just describing interesting events that get you and your group to sort of come up with your own thing right but in terms of like established lore there's little descriptions on the back of faction cards but they lack really any important relevant details they are they are very much like a blueprint of an idea of an alien species yeah yeah uh it it does feel like it's kind of painting with a wide brush but it's also like i think that all of the original um twilight imperium factions fit into cliche in a good way like they, they are like very much a mix of like there were, you know, the bugs from Starship Troopers versus, yeah. like, well, actually, Soul is kind of like they're the Troopers <laughs> from Starship Troopers. Um, the Jolnar, I'm not really sure what Jolnar is exactly a reference to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Space Cats are obviously like the Spacing Guild from, right. yeah. uh, Dune. from Dune. Um, yeah. But yeah, if they're actually, in a way, Jolnar are sort of the Spacing Guild as well, just with a Benny Gesserit. Yeah. Uh, function so they're like they're, you know the fish them being like fishy is definitely kind of similar to being a worm they're like yeah. inside these tanks or whatever well, although actually they're know. not really in tanks in first yeah. edition are they in first edition I would say Jolnar are the biggest detractors from what we know them as now they're just little blue head guys that are semi aquatic they can't they right. can breathe underwater but like they look like the alien from American Dad or whatever they just look like little raisin head guys um so they're they're sort of the biggest difference um and and i mean the base game doesn't come with like a short story of any kind it just is like you are like all of the stuff about you know uh the the lazax uh the history of the wars and all that stuff that really like comes in later that that is not a base game thing that's an expansion like as as christian stuck with this game he started writing more and more um there's a very short story included in the first expansion borderlands um and the the those uh, faction sheets 
are sort of the same as the others, but I will say, too, Borderlands was developed, like, at the exact same time, basically, as base game. Mm-hmm. There are references to Borderlands expansion in the base game rulebook. Right. And and the, the faction home system tiles come with the base game. You just can't use them until you buy the expansion to get the Asarl and uh, the Mentac or whatever. Oh, that's really funny, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that, so obviously Borderlands was part of the base game, but then like that would have messed up the price or something right. like that. Or they can include that much stuff, so it had to be yeah. lopped off and put in its own box. Right. Because otherwise the product was going to be like $120 or something yeah, even in more in 1997, insane. right? Yeah. Something nobody would even dare yeah. do. Um, yeah. But I will note, too, there's a notable uptick in the writing, basically, as you get into the second and third expansion. Like, basically, the base game and the first expansion get developed, and he's like, yeah, I don't know, this stuff kind of exists, right? And right. then people like it, and Christian thinks about it a lot more, and he's like, okay, I want to get kind of more flowery. And, like, you, if you read the backs of the faction sheets, you read the first uh, eight or whatever, and then you read L1 and Nalu, and there is a stark contrast in, like, how Christian is choosing to write in this universe, basically. Yeah. Like, it, it goes from a sort of, like, here's a textbook history discussion of what this uh, faction was and starts turning into the like, they were sitting out in the space for five weeks and you know, it becomes a narrative in the actual text. It becomes prose uh, as it goes on. So he, he clearly gets more invested in, in the writing over the course of the first edition. And, and what I'm really curious about is where that picks up in second edition, basically. Yeah, that will be definitely uh, an awesome thing to sort of, to sort of witness as we go through this ongoing mm-hmm. project of like, when does the lore kick into being closer to how we know it uh, yeah. today? But yeah, the uh, I I did not notice this detail, uh, <laughs> but I did notice that the the faction sheets in first edition are they're pretty bare and straightforward. It's yeah. not like <laughs> it doesn't feel like a very fleshed out universe. There's Mechatol Rex, which is at this point kind of inexplicable and not yeah. like if all you had was first edition, you'd be like, yep. That's, I guess, that's what they call it, that planet. Yeah. At, and there's, there's a part of the rulebook where it sounds like Christian is trying to convince you that it matters. He's like, listen, the end of the game, we'll talk about the progression track. We've, we've talked about it before, but there's a, there's a, the way you win is like all these specific milestones. And one of them is like, have a lot of influence. And there's a part right. of the rulebook where it's like, listen, it's really hard to have a lot of influence, except Mechatol Rex has nine. So that's important, don't you think? But like, there that's it. That's the importance of Mechatol Rex. <laughs> yeah, it's just. Just the nine influence, nothing else <laughs> special about it. And you can, I mean, in our game, we definitely got, you did not have to have Mechatol Rex in order to pass yeah. that milestone. But yeah, yeah, that's that's more specifics. Well, on that note of Mechatol's sort of strange place within the lore and mechanics, let's start talking about the actual design, the, the mechanics of first edition. I think that's the main focus of today's episode is like, how has this game functionally changed since 1997 right yeah it's it's really that with first edition you get kind of a full story just going through the base game and each of the expansions i mean that is quite a lot to cover and it is it is very surprising how much first edition contains within it yeah uh so let's start with base game uh just what what was actually first edition and uh, we sort of have already noted it but it's worth pointing out as we describe this stuff that the borderlands first expansion was like completely on the tails of base game so much that some components were included in base game so it's kind of safe to include them together when you're thinking about like 
design philosophies, but obviously some things probably, you know, they were just slightly staggered. But like the idea that there would be eight factions was like already sort of on the on the forefront and everything. But uh, st- stuff we've had since the beginning, since the dawn of time, Twilight Imperium has been a hex based map. You build the map the exact same way in every rule book since the dawn of time. The Mechatol Rex is in the center. One ring at a time, work your way out, home systems are in the same spot. All of that stuff has been exactly as it was. And if anything, it almost surprises me that there hasn't been more shakeup to that formula over four editions, over 25 Mm -hmm. years. I mean, there's like allowances for some weird, slightly different map layouts, but only like, oh, there's like two galaxies instead. We'll talk about that more later, kind of specifically with first edition. But it's just honestly a little bit surprising me that the map has just always functioned exactly like this. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, why not an octagon, I say? <laughs> these All these hexagons every time, it's like, what's so hot about a hexagon? I don't like that. <laughs> I'll note, too, that uh, First Edition does have rules for two-player, which is a pretty bold assertion uh, by CTP, I would say. It, it even says, like, to throw out the political phase, like the agendas. It's like, yeah, yeah, agendas don't work if there's only two yeah, of you. <laughs> if there's two of you, don't do the agendas, which is, it's funny that he felt the need to say that, but, I mean, it, <laughs> it makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because, what, they're making this new game, uh, CTP doesn't know like what's reasonable about yeah, it. He right. knows in some ways it is unreasonable. So yeah. I like the idea of him being like, okay, so it's a, it's really, really long, kind of clunky game with a lot of moving parts. Uh, I think I should make it where you could play it with your spouse or whatever, you know, <laughs> like ma- maybe there should be a mode for that. And then yeah. eventually they were like, no, nah, it's freaks only in here. You know, <laughs> uh, the other thing I think we noted just when we were playing it, I think we said this in the last episode that we covered uh, first edition in, is just like how many empty spaces there are in this initial set. Like how, how right. scarce the planets are sort of from the get-go. Later an expansion will add more tiles and I think that's like mostly more planets and whatnot. And there's even rules that are going to come up later where it's like, hey, throw out some of those empties. We realize it's um not fun to have like half the map consist of nothing. Yeah. And of course within that, uh, the planet values are also wildly different. I mean, the economy of this game is like a very very different beast altogether it's it's just like the numbers are way way off so like none of the numbers on planets are recognizable and to like we said in the lore stuff like half the planets are like slightly different names than we know them now it's weird that there mm-hmm. was at some point like a moment where it's like oh i don't want it to i want to just slightly spell this differently i guess well, you know, I'm sure there were a lot of lawsuits um, <laughs> because there's only so many science fiction planet names out there. Yeah. And, you know, like, I think I think we've come up with probably about five good ones. <laughs> Tatooine, Arrakis, Garboja. Garboja. It's really just those it's three. It's really just are... that. Honestly, it's just Garboja. Maybe it's the only good sci-fi Sector planet Sector Z. <laughs> what else is good? First edition. Also, uh, we were lacking on some of the units. We have uh, we've we don't have destroyers or war sons yet. And interestingly, in base game, uh, there's nothing with sustained damage. And what I find really confusing is the Borderlands expansion. That first expansion adds sustained damage. And like we keep yeah. saying, they're like designed like on top of each other. And sustained damage doesn't really incur any sort of additional... I guess there's damage counters. And so for some reason in the first printing of just base game, CTP couldn't include the damage counters. That had to be relegated to the next uh, cost of printing for the for the first expansion or something. Well, yeah, he actually talks about it in his book, uh, CTP and Me, uh, <laughs> where he 
he's like, oh, we couldn't fit the damage counters in the first box. And it's a fascinating tale and fascinating story. Fascinating chapter about damage counters. It's really, it's yeah. really something. Where, where, damage counters, where do they go? <laughs> I've got Vinny on my back about these cardboard sheets, and I'm just telling him, listen, we don't have the funds, okay? I'm saying, can we just have one more? Just one more sheet in there. And Vinny's like, it, it won't hold. <laughs> it won't hold, CTP. Uh, we've also got uh, the, the requirement that ground forces must be on planets or you lose control of planets. Uh, and when you lose control of a planet by losing ground forces, you kill the space dock. So if you abandon a planet with a space dock or a PDS on it, you all your stuff just dies there. Everything's just dead. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, yeah. You this This one? sucks okay <laughs> and you will notice this real rule right away yeah, uh, yeah because it is immediately obnoxious uh you have to maintain ground forces on every single planet and if you build a space dock you're basically saying like i'm gonna live here yeah. i'm not going anywhere ever it's funny how many of the expansions spend time being like uh oh that was rough wasn't it let's see if we can clean that up a little bit that yeah. aspect was oh, probably yeah. kind of cruel i think this game is very mean yeah yeah very mean and very slow very, i mean the i mean it's really just comes down to the idea of like what we think happens in a round now one round of twilight imperium a round in first edition is, is a single action from each person like it's extraordinarily right. slow you're gonna have like 15 rounds of play in first edition not not six rounds of play or whatever right uh, right and some of that too comes down to the progression track uh, of course we don't have objectives yet we've we've talked at length about this so i won't like go into like wild details but the idea is there was a series of thresholds to win the game and you have to maintain each one and they get progressively harder and harder the last one being like have 30 influence or whatever in as well as all of the other things on the list like nine tech 30 resources it's a, it's like a huge list of stuff and so uh, the game really played out in a lot more of a like you have to dominate the board you have to yeah. take over kind of like half the map to win right you have to do everything which is like I would say what's very different about TI first edition compared to third and fourth yeah. uh, and I kind of kind of my least favorite part mm -hmm. of it there's a lot of stuff in here that I actually like and have have a lot of affection for yeah I feel like the progression tracker just means that every game you're kind of even though the map may change yeah you're kind of going for the same stuff yeah. and i do think had we started space cats peace turtles on college radio in <laughs> 1998 or whatever uh i'm not sure we would have been able to sustain it as yeah, well yeah. yeah because it would be like well you know how much do things really change game to game? Like right. you could really nail down a strategy. And then the only variable like with a, with uh, your faction is like, what kind of map are you looking at? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, and the big variables are not necessarily strategically minded things too. It's like, well, this uh, game breaking empire shattering single action card came out in round three instead of round seven this time and it yeah. meant extra was just in the dumpster the entire game or whatever you know what i mean like the game the pace right. of the game is so much about the random elements beating you down as opposed to like perfectly executing some sort of strategy so we talked about the uh political phase earlier uh the agendas as it were and this is another one that is honestly relatively unchanged over all of the years i think the function of like where and when the agenda phase happens has shifted yeah. right uh this at this era 
it's actually more in line with fourth edition, which is like there was a political phase. There is a timing in which you do agendas. Third edition is the one that really changed that, right? The, the politics right. card would just suddenly make an agenda phase happen in the middle of a round. And that was the stranger version of all of this. But I think all three of the other editions have had just an agenda phase. Uh, in, in the TI first edition agenda phase, you only have, or political phase as it's called, you only do one agenda, but there's still for and against or elect there's the the concept of laws that stay in play right. um they they are relatively the same idea in how they bend the mechanics of the game and all that stuff they're maybe not written as carefully i will say yeah, that they yeah. they they kind of run the they're they're a little bit all over the place yeah. um which i mean honestly they're today they're a little bit all over the place so that's sure. fair but i think the window of variance uh, in current TI is a little bit tighter yeah. than it was in Twilight Imperium First Edition. <laughs> right. Uh, action cards, I would say, are kind of one of the bigger shakeups where action cards don't feel like, oh, my little thing, like, oh, I'll just toss out this ability. Most of the action cards are like, this is the primary function of my game. Like, this is the new yeah. ability that's going to turn me into... Uh, if anything, a bunch of the action cards are like things that stay in play in some respect. Uh, mm -hmm. And like make you a new faction functionally i mean like sure. all, all of the trade agreements uh, are in the action the, the, the trade agreements make up one seventh or, or about one seventh of the deck and they are like a half your income like they they can constitute a major source of right. your income throughout the game essentially and i just think a lot of the action cards are like that and when they're not sort of a constant effect that like changes how you're stuff functions they're like a mind-blowing powerful ability that like it's like if every action card was ixthian artifact as an action card or whatever i i, I want to couch that a little bit because sure. i think you're cut you're kind of overplaying that i think because <laughs> of because you lost a game based off me having an action card like well that. but there uh, are a handful there are, yeah. are a handful of ixthian artifacts in there right there's like three they're not all that uh, way they're not all that way it's not like the action card yeah. deck is all bangers it can still like deliver you some crap but it is interesting what's in there. The yeah. fact that the Ixthian artifact blow stuff up yeah. thing is actually a player choice thing as as compared to being just like something that may or may not come into play yeah. uh, agenda phase wise, I think is quite a difference. And also, I really think the big notable thing is like all of your variable economy stuff mm -hmm. is just from action cards and yeah. that's not even just trade agreements there's other cards that just deliver you yeah. more credits in the trade phase right it's true and, and i mean even within that like action cards are actually the only tradable commodity you you have credits that you can trade but there's no reason to trade credits except for action cards basically mm -hmm. like the only purpose is to buy action cards from other people there is a market phase when trading is allowed and it's the only time where you can exchange things and the only thing worth exchanging or the only thing possible to exchange in base game are trading or are, uh, action cards and credits uh, some right. of the action cards are like gated you can only play them if you have an ability uh, and all the faction sheets like have an ability like I'm you know whatever the actual word I'm I'm a sneaky I'm espionage I have the espionage skill and I right. can only play this action card if I have espionage which means when someone who doesn't have that skill draws that action card okay maybe I can make some money off of selling this to the person with that ability although some of those are powerful enough even in, not even in a negative way but in a in like the positive way you know like do you want to really sell something that's going to like completely like 
send someone's game into the stratosphere, right? Like if, 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 if they get access to this card, they effectively gain $40. Is that something you, you know, need to let them get a hold of or whatever? Yeah, I would say a lot of the ones that are skill-associated action cards almost feel like an augmentation to yeah. the the faction abilities themselves right. and that they're somehow unlocking a higher level. Like, instead of uh, having, like, a hero system or yeah. a commander or whatever, you have these action cards. So it's it's really all there, everybody. Yeah. Like, like a, every idea yeah. that has been in TI was in first edition in some way. I mean, maybe not mechs, but actually maybe there are mechs. I don't even remember. Uh, there's not mechs, but we'll get to in one of the expansions, uh, shock forces, which mm -hmm. uh, people remember shock mm -hmm. troopers, maybe from third edition. Um, the other big, I, I would say the, the biggest pace of game thing that feels differently is this comes from an old era of war games and like access and ally stuff where units you buy units at the start of a round and then you place those units at the end of a round uh and if you like lose all of your space stocks and you don't have anywhere to build your units you spent the money they just all die and they don't you They're don't get to save them now. for next round there they just all go away and that gets uh that rule gets even more cruel later in one of the expansions but at the, the base game it's just like as long as you've got a space stock somewhere you can put the units down but there's like a you know there's a time gated thing of you've got to finish the round before you can uh drop those down um we we talked about the turns are all one at a time uh what that really constitutes as is like i do all of my movement and battles in one sort of fell swoop those are, those are the only actions you can take there's not strategic actions you know there's no strategy cards or anything like that um there's not even really component actions action cards are all like during specific timings they're they're never like as an action because you only have like one action your action is just the movement and fights you get into effectively yeah, there is. Yeah, there. That's an interesting observation. There, there are no actions as we know them in in Twilight Imperium Fourth Edition. It's just always a phase of the game that you're in. Yeah. where you do this. Yeah, but there is no. You are a player, and you could do one of several different types right. of actions. Now you'll do them. It's yeah. It's just like you either have the only variable really is do you have an action card we don't know about that is relevant to the current phase or current moment? Right. Right. Uh, and then beyond that, I don't know. You're just, it's very formal. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's much more formal than TI4 is. It is. It's its very formal. Uh, and tech is the last thing, too, that's also quite simplified compared to anything we've had in third or fourth edition. It's just a, a straight across chart. There's three tech paths. Uh, you know, the, you've effectively got what we sort of constitute as blue, red, and yellow tech. They're not, they're called like propulsion general and warfare tech or something like that weapon um weapons propulsion weapon in general thank you um so and the thing we noted when we played it is the weapons tech tree just sucks and you have to get lots of tech like you are required to get like nine tech before the end of the game which means everybody goes propulsion in general because the tech that are it, that's in there is so good you would be you know you would be devastating your own game not to get those techs so that part felt a little uh Lots of room for improvement, I would say. Everything else is like the idea is mostly sound with just like little bits of balance. I think the tech thing was like too simple, and I'm glad that one really over time has like been changed in dramatic ways to try to allow more flexibility within tech. I think tech nowadays feels way more freeing than it did in first edition. Yeah. I almost think that, like, here's here's my hot take. Tech is kind of at the same level 
to me in first edition as it is now mm. uh and it's been worse <laughs> so i would say like ti like like j just to talk up ti first edition where it's at is it's not great but mm -hmm. it's recognizable to me from fourth in a way that i think third is kind of just insane yeah like, yeah third edition yeah. ti tech <laughs> is just what are you thinking why do you think this is okay you know what i mean a sort of offensive uh, an offensive idea of just like when you sit down with something and you're yeah. like wow that is messed up that you thought we would do this um and then we do yeah third edition tried to learn too much from like pc games where you can have like like civilization and especially like later civilizations where like the tech web is really crazy and interesting and dynamic but it's like well that's a but that's because a computer can manage that <laughs> right, right. A computer can tell me what i have the prerequisites for when i have to do that manually with little cards and have to keep track of like this tech requires these two upgrades one of which requires this thing over here like the web is yeah. just such a mess it's called a user interface, and in real life, it's just a stack of cards in front of you, you know? Yeah. In the game, it's a menu. Yeah. The menu's nice. Oh, a menu makes me feel guided. You know, it's like I'm at a diner, yeah. you know? I'm at a diner with a big, you know, when you get the big book, when, when you go to a diner and they're like, wow, they make every food yeah. that exists, and yeah. you're just flipping through it. It's like that. That's fine. A stack of cards where it's up to me to organize them, that sounds like work. Right. Okay. <laughs> Everybody in third edition, there, there was only one menu, and you had to pass the around the table of six people, right? That there right. was there oh, was one, yeah. the rule book menu. Oh my God. It's just over there, but everyone has uh, everybody in existence's third edition rule book is torn to shreds because it it's the most passed around component you've had in any board game. It had to be handed not just for the the uh, tech progression chart, but also like if you used distant suns, domain counters, and all sure. that. There were so many. Things Things you just literally had to reference that's why in third edition it was extremely popular for people on like board game geek to like give you printouts of you know relevant information everybody it, we, you know we made like a stack of paper where it's like here's your little here's your menu basically everyone right, has your own right. so that you can reference all of this information and i mean that's the big thing that fourth edition kind of did away with and honestly I, I don't think base game first edition has too much of this stuff um my, my summary of first edition is this is all relatively simple. Like what we just described, that's it. That's the whole game. There, there's mm -hmm. actually not that much meat on the bone of first edition base game. It, it is quite a simple and recognizable thing. Uh, the, the majority of the like really complex weight that the game gets known for, I think is introduced in all of the expansions. I mean, everything we just covered is like, you, you move around on a space board and you do fights and you resolve agendas and you buy tech. And that's it. That's the entire game of first edition right. without right. any of the expansion stuff. Yeah, it's fun. It feels kind of um, it feels kind of pared down in some ways. Like it, it feels like you get into the action a little faster than yeah. you do uh, these days. That being said, there is a bunk round one where right. nothing happens at all. Right. Um, but you move through a round. Really quickly, a round in TI1 is nothing compared to, to yeah. current Twilight Imperium. Um, and yeah, I mean, I know we said this in the episode before, uh, but I'll say it again. Uh, if you can only get access to base game uh, Twilight Imperium First Edition, I still think you should play it, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, like, absolutely. Even, even this version of the game is is worthwhile. Um, it's just good for the... For, to, for curiosity's sake, yeah. you know, like open it up, check it out, see what ideas were in there and have been in there yeah. uh, the whole time. And, and you know, the tech is 
that the tech is better. <laughs> the tech got better and everything else is sound. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest selling point to like going through this process for me is learning like the the building blocks of Twilight Imperium are pretty stable. I mean, we, we, we know what this game looks like and it is what first edition has for us more or less some things get slightly tweaked with each edition but it's it's the really wacky stuff that gets added later that's like yeah those were just ideas we were you know we were throwing spaghetti at the wall or whatever but like this is the framework and all of it is immediately recognizable as twilight imperium which before we started all this i wasn't sure we were going to recognize first and second edition like i, I thought mm -hmm. they would feel like vastly different games um, because of like the progression chart and things like that. But they really, I mean, they really don't. It feels like mostly the same game. Yeah, it feels like the same game, but without the, and I mean, you know, some people don't like the variants of TI. Some people don't yeah. like that. Oh, well, this objective uh, flipped and, you know, two and four color came out. Right. I guess Jolnar wins again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like people don't like that aspect of the game. So if you're looking for something that's a little more uh, solid in its approach and is just like it always kind of delivers like on this type of thing mm -hmm. um what well there's still being a lot of random swerving uh first edition base game is is really really cool but we are not here to talk about just yep. base game now yep. are we no uh it's time to get into the expansions but first let's take a quick little break <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Space Cats Peace Turtles. Uh, hey everyone, guess what? We are about to throw this thing right off the rails because uh -oh. everything was safe in base game and it's time to get wacky and wet and wild yes. and weird. Yes, wiki wiki wild. <laughs> The first expansion is Borderlands, which we have said a number of times. The base game rulebook makes like reference to Borderlands existing. This is this was yeah. a known variable. Uh, uh -huh. the, the base game gives us Jolnar, Sardak Nor, Exchak Kingdom, Emirates of Akan, Barony of Letnev, and Federation of Soul. And Borderlands gives us the Mentak Coalition and the Asaral Tribes. So we are now up to eight of our known factions uh and the this expansion i would say is mostly weird little just like little adjustments that are surprise again surprising that this like required kind of an expansion but it is it's just basically like more cards and a few more tokens uh the first thing is advanced construction is a rule in borderlands we decided to make space docks uh more confusing and more mean where now your builds are tied to specific space docks it's actually hilarious here's the thing i miss uh from board games there are so many times in twilight imperium first edition where the rule book is like pull out some a pen and some paper and uh make a little craft this one is like make a box and then get a piece of paper. You're gonna take all of your units that you wanna build, make one box per space dock, and it's assigned to that space dock, and secretly put your units inside of that box, then cover up that box so that nobody can see what you're building and where, and those are assigned to space docks, and then at the end of the round, you open up the box and reveal what you built at each space dock. The other, the flip side being, if you lose a specific space dock, anything in that space dock's box 
would die or whatever, right? So everything got more specific, but there's like this weird little mini game with building now that probably most players don't even care about. It's not like you're like that intensely targeting other people's space stocks. They're probably too right. heavily de- fortified to do anything about. But like he wanted this whole diplomacy style hidden information game, but gave you nothing to do it with the game itself, right? This is yeah, before yeah. like little tuck boxes are commonplace in production capabilities. This is CTP is basically printing this himself. So he's like, yeah, build a box out of a piece of paper and make it work. I don't know. Well, build some boxes, okay? <laughs> you got you bought the you gave me the money for the game, but your work is not done. <laughs> I need a little more out of you. Come on, finish the game. Uh, we also introduce our first proper uh, like sort of optional rule called assassins. Assassins are purchasable units that uh, don't exist on the board, and they are a doozy. Uh, During the political phase, basically, uh, any assassins you have bought, you can announce assassination attempts. And you pick another player, and you verbally say, I'm assassinating Hunter's uh, people that are coming to this political phase. Yeah. And... Hunter, you can play an assassin as a counter assassin, a bodyguard is what they're known as. You can block me. But if you don't have an assassin purchased, I roll a die. On a one to a four, the assassination attempt is successful. And we will go over what that means in just a second. On a five to nine, it is unsuccessful. So 50% chance of it doesn't do anything. I bought this thing Uh and nothing happened. 40% chance of... I do something truly devastating. You discard all of your action cards. You don't get to vote in this pro- this uh, political phase. And you have a minus two to all offensive rules roles in the next game round. So you can defend yourself, but you can't go on the aggression uh, this next round because uh-huh. you have a minus two. That's like, especially the action card thing. Like that is truly devastating. That ruins your game. Now, right. yeah. Uh, we only accounted for 90% of the what can happen on a 10-sided die. Yeah, well, what happens on a 10, Matt? On a 10, the assassin betrays the master, and instead, I, myself, paid for an assassin, I lose all my action cards, I don't get to vote, and I have a minus two on all offensive rolls. So, wow. here's a mechanic where I don't know why anybody would use it. I don't know why anybody would ever buy an assassin. The risk and reward doesn't match up at all you have a one-tenth chance of just completely pooping your diaper uh in front of everybody so i i I don't i don't see it (laughs) yeah and i mean i've been potty trained for a long time myself so i don't really need to be getting back into that at this stage of my life yeah i mean i think i think i'm better off alone on this one you know what i mean like i don't i don't think i need this um yeah and i also think that anytime you have a component like this in any board game that's like it might do something, but it also might ruin your day. Yeah. I would rather not ruin my own day. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Like, if given the choice, I would rather leave it, uh, ruining my own day just off the table. I don't need it psychologically, right. and I don't need it emotionally. Well, you know even, what I mean? More importantly, I would love the odds to do something beneficial to be the majority odds, right? Like, why is it that uh-huh. it's 40% chance of doing something you right. meant to do, chance of nothing. You wasted money. You lose the assassin when it fails the assassination. It's just gone. And then the 10% chance of just tanking your game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's not great. I I think I think it's kind of bad. I would recommend like not using it. Yeah, I would say I will say uh, this one becomes maybe slightly more. Here's what it is. 
just having assassins on the on our base game like our base game thing felt tight right felt like a, a complete game and assassins feels right too wild as we get through all the expansions the case i'll make is if you're gonna throw in one wild thing you are now required to throw in every wild thing that's the thing is if you make this game calvin ball and everybody has way too many chaotic variables that's its own kind of fun right assassins right. as a singular mechanic that doesn't make any sense but assassins on top of distant suns on top of the things we'll cover later like now it's like you know what everybody's just playing with fire this is just a game where everyone is checking out the ixthian artifact and seeing if it blows up in their face yeah i think that's fair and that makes sense I don't want to do it, but <laughs> right. that's fine. Yeah. If other people want to, that's okay. I think I allow it. Sure. I allow it, <laughs> I everyone. Allow it. Uh, this is also, of course, like we said earlier, the expansion where we get essentially capital ships. We get sustained damage. What I love here, something that's a, a cute little thing that I think there is a, like a fan patch, a fan expansion for third edition uh, that I believe sort of mimicked this rule. Uh, but the rule in first edition sustained damage is uh, if a unit is sustained, its movement is limited to one, and it has a minus one to all rolls, and then it costs uh. money to repair. It's three bucks to repair your uh, damaged units, which I think is kind of cool. It's like an actual. It's not just a soak damage. It's like, listen, this is going right. to cost you some like power out there. I think that's cute. Yeah, and you also end up having like a lot more money in yeah. Twilight Imperium first editions. So or anytime we talk numbers, if you're like, "Whoa, three resources to repair," it's yeah, like, yeah. "Ah, that's actually not that much money in TI yeah. one money." It's like because uh, you end up making a lot <laughs> off of like trade. Yeah, like it's like you get your raw uh, planet value, but then like you get a bunch for trade, which is just like getting money yeah. for nothing. It feels like completely unhinged as yeah. far as its connection to anything tangible <laughs> in the game. Yeah, uh, you also you didn't know. Uh, I think this is interesting. Carriers get sustained damage yeah, yeah. as well, not just dreadnoughts. Right. So dreadnoughts and carriers gain sustained damage. Um, so yeah, that that reduction in movement and rolls real bad for dreadnoughts, deal. obviously, but also really bad for carriers. Yeah. You don't want that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the other thing, so those are capital ships. Uh, something introduced in TI First Edition is capital planets. I thought legendary planets were a novel idea, but turns out. And planet attachments. I thought both those things were like novel things, but capital planets, this is such a, I think this is a cool system. I want to see capital planets come back. Here's what it, how it works. Uh, before the third turn, so there's just like a moment, it's like, hey, after the game has started, uh, <laughs> yeah. we're going to do this thing. Everyone has to declare a capital planet outside of their home system. You pick a planet. And that planet basically gets, like, an attachment on it. It gets, like, plus two, plus one, or whatever, right? I, yeah, the, yeah. the numbers don't matter. Again, none of the numbers are going to make sense to you in fourth edition terms. But it gets a little bit improved. Um, and these capital planets also function as targets for all the other players. If I take one of Hunter's capital planets, I gain a permanent boost to my influence which is like one of the metrics with which i need to win the game right like if i have right. a permanent boost to influence that's a big deal for the final marker on the progression track um and once again hunter would lose all of his action cards and half of your credits your money would ju you would just lose half your dollars if you didn't spend it all right. uh and yeah it's and 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 it's not a may like in round three Everyone must yeah. declare one capital yeah. planet. Everyone has to put a target on the board. Yeah, and it's horrible because, well, I mean, you're not getting much for that, really. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really a bad deal. Yeah, sure, you're getting a little extra 
uh, monies, but you've now put, you know, a, a second target yeah. on the table. Also, it doesn't make sense in fiction, CTP. <laughs> I, these, what, they already have capitals. They're on their home <laughs> systems. Why do they declare a new capital? That's not very, like, imperial of them. I thought the whole idea is to insist, you know, yeah. London is the capital yeah. of the world, you know? We've got Washington, D.C., but have you ever been to Santa Fe, New Mexico? Let me tell you, there's something going on there. It's really... Yeah, that would be like if as the United States uh, manifested its destiny, it declared, like, new capitals of the U.S., yeah. like, on, you know, in the West. That's insane. That's not... That's not. I mean, I guess we did sort of do that with, like, states. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I don't know why I brought up Manifest Destiny. What a horrible... What a horrible thing that has nothing to do with this yeah. board game. You know there's what? There's no connection There's no... To Yes, we will There's not be. No connection. We won't be bringing up Manifest Destiny specifically as a term at all in yes. this episode. It we won't be won't doing come that. Up. It really won't come up. And because there's no connections between my innocent board games and the real life atrocities our world is built on. <laughs> Speaking of, our next mechanic is mines. Just mines, just bombs that get placed. Uh, I actually. I always miss mines. We, we played with third edition mines, and the problem with mines has always been. They're a nifty idea, but then you forget to ever build them. You forget to buy them or whatever, um, which is probably true for first edition. But I just still like that they I wish they would come back and maybe just were slightly better. But the idea is there are these little tokens that dreadnoughts can place. And if you enter that system, you take damage, right? The mines blow up. It's pretty obvious how the system works. But what's funny about mines is they can work against the person who placed them, they don't belong to anybody. They're just mines that are in the system now. So if I right. move into my own system with mines, I risk taking some damage or whatever. Um, so I just think that's a fun area control sort of thing to throw in there. You've um, always liked mines. I know. You've always, this has always been a thing with you. You liked them in TI3. We, you like them in first edition. It was one, every it time was, you bring them up and describe <laughs> them, I fall asleep for a second. I wake back up at the end. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sounds that's, good. That was the thing. In third edition, of course, you had to pick your set, right? Your loadout. Your, you had to choose yeah, sure. what all optional rules sure. you wanted to do. And... I would always say, let's you let's let's make sure mines are in there. And we'd be like, yeah, sure, mines. There. We set the container with the mines on the table. And then yep. no one would ever touch them the entire Including game. You. <laughs> Including you. Including me. you, hypocrite. <laughs> no. No, I, I agree. I wanted them there. I wanted access to it, but the cost never really uh made sense. <laughs> never really worked out. And I'm not sure it works out in this. We yeah. I don't think we used them. So no. I don't Well, I don't know if evaluate. we actually knew they were I don't I you know, we, we were learning a lot in our single That's game true. of first edition, but That's true. I, I I still pause it. In third edition it was like a cruiser ability, and I think that's what cruisers should be. Like, you know how uh Titans, you know, the idea is like I could go take a planet and then drop a sleeper token on it, and then that's kind of right. like a, a planted seed. I wish people could do that, like with a cruiser two. Cruiser two would be cooler if I could move three and drop a mine in that area. So it's like, listen, yeah, I'm yeah. only going in with a cruiser and an infantry, right? It's not much, but if I can get there, I've got more on the defense on the flip side of that. I, I think there's there's something. I wish cruisers were mine units. I would allow it uh, as a faction ability for yeah. like a new faction, yeah, like a cool. homebrew faction that like their whole thing is they they lay traps and yeah. have mines and right. stuff. That'd that's be cute. cool. Yeah. Uh, our last thing to get introduced in Borderlands is 
just some convolution for you. Uh, we already have trade agreements. We already have the idea that you and I did a trade agreement together, and that trade agreement is good until one of us attacks the other, right? That's just printed on the card. If you if you attack someone with whom you have a trade agreement, you lose it. Well, in Borderlands, we had to make a rule that is declarations of war and peace. You are either at war or at peace with someone. If you mm -hmm. are at peace with them, you can do trade agreements with them. You, there is a phase of the game when you can declare war safely on someone and you just can decide right. that it's then and you would lose all your trade agreements and all that. Um, and the, the, the really the reason this rule exists, the declaration of war and peace is if you are at peace with someone, you technically can still surprise attack them. You could attack them in the round. Um, but it comes at a huge cost. You pay 30 credits to the bank and you lose five permanent influence. So there's like, again, a system where it's like, you should never ever do that. There's almost no way a surprise attack is worth it, right? In what way is a surprise attack going to benefit you 30 credits and five influence to make up for what you're losing by doing the surprise attack? There's no way the math checks out in any meaningful respect. Uh, so this is just like such an odd, you have to keep track of it now. I need like, I, it's another right. thing where it's like, get out a piece of paper and write down who you are at war with and who you are at peace with. You have to keep track of this stuff. Well, okay. I want to defend it real quick okay. because I actually kind of love this idea, <laughs> um, because of the declaration part. Yeah, I like yeah, any sure. opportunity for the players to be dramatic, but you did misstate one thing. Trade agreements. So the thing about trade agreements in TI first edition, mm -hmm. you're thinking about third edition trade agreements in first edition they can be canceled at any time by any player really suggesting that if if war were declared the if the, war the defending player would would cancel the trade agreement but i know that at the end of the day we are all dirty on the inside this <laughs> this playing this game so much has made us so dirty that if you declare war on me i am going to think about maybe we should keep trading though because it's good what's you know what's yeah. good for me is good for you and yes we have a, a disagreement in this sector but i think we can maintain the agreement um so yeah there is no requirement for you to cancel trade agreements uh when when war were declared so this is the only version of that. Trade agreements are broken immediately if the two trading partners are engaged in either space battle or invasion combat with each Where other. Where is that? Trade agreements with the Hakan player are not broken if the Hakan are involved in combat with their trading partner. Uh, that's just from uh, subsection 4.8 paragraph. Oh, it's uh, not written on two. the card. It's not on I the card. It is, it's, it's not on the card. This, hey, we're back in the days where some stuff you just have to know. You know what I mean? You just got to know that that stuff is out there, basically. I, in reading okay. this rulebook, I found multiple rules we did wrong in our playthrough because there's just like a random sentence somewhere in the rulebook that contradicts the idea that some other sentence somewhere else put forward. Ah. <laughs> uh, so it's so prepare yourself for conversations like what we just had. Yeah, yeah. Basically. <laughs> this is Twilight Imperium arguing this about the function of the rules. Now this <laughs> is Twilight Imperium, the unofficial podcast <laughs> for litigation and pedantry. Uh, so this expansion I like. It's some simple buffs dispersed to a few mechanics and systems and ships. Uh, the assassins feel chaotic and like a fool's errand. So you, it's like they're in the game, but no one's going to use them, basically. Um, but war and peace to me feels like supremely limiting. <laughs> like the idea that you must be declaring these things at specific phases just means you don't get to do as much stuff in, an, in a round, right? Because it's too it costs too much to do anything, which just slows the game down more, right? We're already talking about a game where it's like rounds 
one through three are just like i'm just trying to expand man i'm just trying to do whatever i can yeah and yeah. now we're adding mechanic where it's like i want to take some ground but i need to wait about two rounds to do that because i need to get to here the next round declare war on you and then get yeah. in there the next round it's just like everything I has to take it. as long as possible i love it because it just means that if you are not thinking about aggression ahead of time yeah it will cost you a lot to do it. Right. So I, I kind of, and, and I, I think in a way this might actually encourage more aggression than not. Yeah. Because you know now that you have to count on it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like a lot of the, a, a lot of the reason that Twilight Imperium doesn't have as much aggression as some of the bloodthirsty members of the mostly Europeans want uh, from it is because it's so like, up in the air and wobbly whether yeah, there yeah. should be any aggression at all right whereas this is saying listen if you want to do any at all you have to plan on it and you got to look the other player right. in the eye and say <laughs> well war were declared yeah 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 sneak attacks are basically way too costly so you have to project your might and and let yes. them know you're coming project uh, your might <laughs> mortal combat uh so that's it for Borderlands. Uh, our next expansion is Distant Suns. And I'm going to put this in um, Spirit Island terms for those that care about that game. Uh, you've got your base game and Borderlands is like branch and claw for, for Spirit right. Island. Where it's like they were just kind of developed in concert with each other. And then Distant Suns is like, hey, let's bust this game wide open and go wild. And then there's going to be another expansion later called The Outer Rim that is sort of like building off just the backbone of distant suns but like distant suns is our big capital e expansion of first edition this is where we have a lot of major stuff introduced to shake up the game and it's it is um also uh like we noted in the lore kind of bit this is where like the lore starts to feel like it's actually taking off in kind of a meaningful respect. The stories are getting written with more prose. There's like the stuff that's getting introduced is leaning way harder into the thematics as compared to the strategy of the game, right? We have a strategic foundation and CTP came into Distant Suns being like, I want it to feel like an actual empire builder, not like a right. strategic board game. It's it is it is a big civilization builder. Yeah, it's four X. Yeah, and yeah. only one of the X's is exterminate or whatever whatever <laughs> right. the X's are in sure. that. I don't yeah. know. I I couldn't be bothered. So the titular uh, mechanic of Distant Suns is Distant Suns. Uh, it is our domain counters. People who played third edition will probably recognize this system. It's actually more or less the exact same as what we had in third edition, which uh, was a much maligned or beloved system, depending on who you ask. There are two types of Twilight Imperium players out there. Those that love this goofy, flavorful stuff and those that think it completely breaks the game. Exploration in fourth edition in pok is like trying to meet in the middle it's dane trying to make everybody happy and even then there's people out there that think the exploration is too swingy and wild uh which it's like man i don't know how you can make a more balanced <laughs> exploration mechanic than than pok it's tough but uh distant suns certainly is not more balanced uh so here's how distant suns works in first edition every single planet gets a little token on it. There's a thing at the back of the rulebook to let you know what the tokens do. If you take a planet, you flip the token and something happens 
just something might be amazing for you. It might be like huge cost savings on an upcoming tech. It might just be a bunch of free infantry or something, which, and in this game, like getting infantry out is a pretty big pain in the butt. Um, it, it might just kill your incoming infantry. You just don't get to do that at all. You don't get the planet. You didn't do anything. Oh, um, that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> you, you thought you were doing something and you I'm didn't do anything. Fun. Isn't that I'm fun? I'm having fun. <laughs> it's so fun. And also... Uh, what and you can just destroy them like in ti3 so as well yeah you so just let, take an extra turn and destroy the yeah domain let's go counter. over that the the idea is you can instead of going in blind you can wait and you can spend a whole turn basically instead of invading the planet at all you can probe the distant suns counter you can look at it at the domain counter i should say um and you check it out and you know what it is what's hilarious about this system is there are a couple tokens where if you just probe them something happens and i think in this yeah. instance they're mostly good uh it's it uh, there's i think there's like one bad thing that can happen to you if you probe uh, a token and, and you weren't supposed to go. but i think probing is mostly good but it's very slow and then you have the option to raise the planet which is to kill just destroy the token if you raise blind there are some tokens that will devastate you they're they're truly awful and more importantly uh you when you raise actually this is the worst thing when you raise uh, you roll a die, and on a one to seven, you just you kill the token. That's fine. If you roll an eight or a nine, it costs you one permanent influence. And if you roll a ten, it costs you two permanent influence. You just go down, and you make the game harder for yourself in the long wow. run. Uh, and uh, the, yeah, there's these psychic frogs of Gamma Iridius. Uh, you might see people on like the Discord making jokes about this. This is a this is a domain counter in uh, Distant Suns. They do all sorts of wild stuff. If you raise a psychic frog, you discard all of your... This is a common thread. The, the main thing CTP knows to do to you is to make you lose all your action yeah. cards. Lose all your action cards. Yeah. And lose all your votes and have a minus two to all offensive... Basically, like, assassins are everywhere, and these psychic frauds of Gamma Iridius are... Uh, are able to assassinate you if you raise them uh if you if you probe them you can probe then raise immediately so at least it doesn't take like three action you don't probe the next round raise the next round finally right. invade the planet you can do it in, a, in like a nice order but the other problem is you have to have like a fighter or whatever per probe like you have to have a bunch of units to be allowed to do right. these things uh so it's just a huge way to slow down the game like it's it just you, you thought expansion was slow early game now it takes three rounds to take your first planets if you want to do it safely yeah and that sucks uh and it sucked in ti3 yeah. and uh it's still the idea of being mean or or forcing the player into risk reward situations at the very beginning of the game uh is i think has always been and always will be a bit much. Yeah. Uh, personally, <laughs> I am not one of these people that thinks that TI3 Distant Suns was good. Yeah. Um, I think we need to be nice to the player in round one and round two. <laughs> and then in round three, we can start being a little bit meaner. Right. Uh, but yeah, let I don't the know. game it, start. It, maybe would be a nice thing. Let the game start. <laughs> Let's maybe start the game first, and then maybe we see what happens. You yeah. know, man, the number of times someone's game would be just literally completely ended because they round one first explore. Like imagine Muat. There was a thing where you could explore, uh, and then it was just a supernova, and you just would lose. Just everything would blow up. Like imagine that happening to your starting fleet. You have to move out right. here, and just boom, yeah. everything's dead. Whatever. It's not that bad in this in these domain counters, but it's it's pretty bad. Um, this system is also closely tied to a system known as propaganda. 
Uh, they're also called civilizations. Some of these counters have civilizations on them. And boy, if you want to talk about convoluted systems, it's time to talk about propaganda. Uh, what's funny is last week, Hunter, you and I homebrewed a faction. And what we said was, you know what's not really represented is like the native populations of these planets. Yes. Like who yes. lives on Corneke and Resculon? There's probably, right. it's like, it's not like we just showed up and decided to put a population here. There was a population here. This system existed. They had this idea 24 years ago in 1998. Right. They, they right. I guess 25 years ago, they they knew they wanted this. Uh, so this, there are civilizations on these planets and you have to manage them. There's a whole system of, they can be content, neutral, discontent or they can be an open rebellion and those first three are like whatever they're just sort of managing moods and they slightly affect the planet values like you'll have like a plus one or a minus one or just an equal thing or whatever right they're just like slightly adjusting things but if your planets go into rebellion if, if bad things happen uh you have to like roll dice to keep your infantry on that planet alive and again if you lose infantry you lose the planet. It will just revert to neutral status. So you could just lose right. the, the... It could go so far into open rebellion that you just lose the planet. And rebellion spreads. Uh, sort of like the mob die. Like the mob mechanic in Root Marauders. The the rats. Right. Like these, these rebellions happen and they make other planets adjacent to them open up into new rebellions sort of all over the place. Not just to you, but to other players' neighboring planets. These rebellions just spread across the galaxy. Uh, uh, so it's awful. <laughs> like I, I, we haven't played with it. I don't know, but it is a huge step. There's like a propaganda phase where you have to just go through and roll a bunch of dice and change the factor. Like, okay, okay, this planet over here is now content, and this one over here is discontent, and this one moves to neutral, and this one drops down, and then this one goes into rebellion. And because it went into rebellion, you have to roll this dice. It's just like it's going to take 30 minutes to resolve this right. step every single round. And again, first edition has like 15 rounds, so we're just going to do this. So many times it is wildly complicated. And what is the net result? You might get a plus one to your planet or you might lose it. <laughs> Ooh, might get plus one. Yeah, I agree, Matt. When people stand up for what they believe in and defend their homes from outside invaders and influence, it is a waste of time and annoying. That's something I want you on the record as as saying, as being <laughs> in favor of. Uh -huh. People should just, you know, people should just embrace, just embrace. Space Cats, officially Space Cats Beast Turtles is propaganda, all right? We are... We we are, we work for the U.S. government. We we are a psyop. This entire organization. <laughs> this is how fun he's a little conspiracy theorist. <laughs> this, uh, this is thing how fun uh, first edition rulebooks go. It, it, the, these rulebooks love to like offer you strategic advice and also sort of like lore implications, just in the in the body of the like mechanical text. And yeah. in this, uh, in, in describing swayed uh, populations, it says, planets in home systems can never be allocated any sway. Yes, your own planets have civilizations, but they are too <laughs> homogenous to be swayed. <laughs> oh, 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 that's dirty. And you, you let it slip a yeah. little there, bud. We Woof. saw your hand. Oh, you said the quiet part out loud. Gross. You weirdo. <laughs> your values 
CTP. What are you talking about? It's not CTP's values. It's the Jolnar's values. Is he not a Danish man living on U.S. soil making stupid science fiction board <laughs> games? How homogenous is that? <laughs> That's that's all the detail I have for I mean this this rule takes up like a full 3 pages of the rule book. It's just 3 pages of just trying to explain how complicated and weird this system is and it's something you just won't want to use. So so that's enough of that. Uh we also get introduced the Winaran custodians in this. This is where CTP is really like thinking about plots he wants in the game story elements he wants in the game and then mechanically representing them compared to just like the idea of moments in the game so the winaran custodians are introduced as a defending force on mechatol now you can't just take mechatol you have to fight your way there you got to kill a bunch of infantry and fight through some pds which is hilarious given we already addressed mechatol doesn't necessarily do anything it's just that it is nine influence, but we also made it like five times more difficult to take. Yeah, I remember like actually in our game, it was sort of starting with it made me just feel like, well, I'm not even going to factor Mechatol Rex yeah. in. It's not even worth points. Yeah. If anything, you're kind of a sucker right. in, in TI1 even fighting the custodians because like oh cool you cleared that out now yeah, i'm yeah. gonna come in after you right now that you've <laughs> right. gotten them out of the way you killed all I'll your own infantry trying to take that yeah if, if, if you don't take it with enough you're basically doomed uh okay here's my favorite thing so that we are so technically everything before when our in custodians in this expansion was considered like non-optional rules i mean an, an expansion is optional right that's sort of the idea but now we're like when our custodians and onward we are just talking about in optional rules and the most hilarious thing that ctp designed in this is a thing called interstellar war uh <laughs> i'm just gonna read this paragraph to you hunter are you ready this this is a yeah. rule christian t peterson thought was valuable to have in his rule book Use two copies of Twilight Imperium and one copy of Borderlands to start two separate games. Interstellar War can be played with six to eight players. In an eight-player game, each player controls one of the eight possible races and starts the game with four players on each board. For a seven-player game, simply blah, 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 six-player games, uh, three players on each. This is Split Galaxy Map. But there's not mm -hmm. enough system tiles to justify it. So you have to have two copies of base game to make this work. And within these rules is the idea that they are two separate games taking place with their own set of like actions. Like the, we don't have to do political phases and we're not in the same political phases as each uh -huh. other. If I pass a law on my galaxy, it doesn't affect the other galaxy. The only phase we all have to take at the same time is our movement and battle step, basically. Oh, so... What is even the point of this? What does it do? Good question. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. No, I, I'm actually in favor of this. If I had a rule book, if I made a board game and there was a rule book, I too would have a paragraph saying, consider inviting your friends over or no, just to hang out. Like, consider having some buddies over. Have some friends sit at that table over there while you sit at this table over here. Heck, 
Have them sit at his, have them sit there with you. Just don't let them bother you while you're playing your game. <laughs> Shut up, you. You'll say, you're just supposed to be here next to me. My friend, it makes me feel good to have you near. It's also wildly complicated, like how you do trade agreements. You can enact trade agreements with the other galaxy, but you have to do it. No, you're, you're, come on. So, what? So here's the idea. Here's the idea. The, the, the actual thing is the wormholes connect these two galaxies together. So you split up the wormholes and each side only gets one alpha and only gets one beta. And that's how the two of you can jump over from map to map. But uh, why? Just to fight? Like, yeah, what are you to even To fight doing? and to enact trade agreements and that's it. And and to, to, to play a a bigger game of Twilight Imperium. I just think it's hilarious that it takes two copies. I mean, this this is a the split galaxy thing came was a was a thing in third edition you could do, but it didn't take sure. didn't require two copies of the board game. So, yeah. Well, I do think I would another thing I would do if I had a board game is include a paragraph that said like, why not buy another copy of the game for no good reason? <laughs> like you know, yeah. Do, don't you need more than one? Don't you need? I think you need four. Come on. What are you doing? Yeah, a burner copy. This is the 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 one you're reading now. This should be the bad one, the crappy one. The other one you should laminate and put it up in a museum. (laughs) Our next mechanic is called oh, it's this is odd. It's called Manifest Destiny, uh, as just a system in this game. And Manifest Destiny is actually uh just the way to speed up round one. Uh, that's basically it. It's it's like a way to just let everybody start with some colonies. Instead That's of fine. doing the like three round take stuff, it's like, hey, you can just take some planets next door to you in, in the early rounds. Great point. There was no other way to say that. You know, you just had to. <laughs> that was the term. You had to bring that up, didn't you? Right. It couldn't. It couldn't just be. You know, I, I don't. What are they actually? They have a different name for it in Ti Three, isn't it's it? Just like, like accelerated early game yeah, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, accelerated like, early turns or whatever. At some point, somebody was like, "We don't really need to call this Manifest Destiny because." Right. We don't need to. Christian, you don't need action cards just called genocide. Like, you don't have to do that. Is it there doesn't one ha- called no, genocide? No, but oh, okay. it's, I mean, there <laughs> might as well be. X89 bacterial weapon is like saying a lot, isn't it? No, I don't know. That's different. That Matt. is different. That's different. All uh-huh, right. That uh-huh. is some. I, I am comfortable with the science fiction <laughs> distance on that one. Yeah. I feel okay with it. Uh, let's continue uh, just complicating things. We have one rule in this rule book that's simplifying things, right? This manifest destiny. Let's make. Let's just make getting this game started a little bit faster. But let's also add a way to make trade way more difficult. So before the trade agreements could just be established, right? Now I must have ships above your planets to be able to start a trade agreement with you for me to propose a tr- i have to have the trade agreement action card and i have to get ships above your planets for us to now start our trade agreement that's just a rule we decided to add into this board game yeah that one's dumb and <laughs> i i don't want that so we're that's exactly the type of stuff that i would hear and just be like we're gonna cut that yeah. that is annoying <laughs> Uh, next up is perhaps the best uh, rule that is in all of first edition that we have lost. Like the, the the biggest loss of anything is in this expansion, we get our event cards and event cards on the backside of them just look like agenda cards. They are they go right. into the agenda deck and event cards randomly get shuffled into the agenda deck and they just happen it's not an agenda that we get to vote on this is just a thing that occurs Mm -hmm. to the table Mm. and then you get to do an agenda afterwards and that is great so great so wonderfully thematic love it love it every time what a wonderful thing 
Yeah, I think every once in a while, I mean, honestly, I don't know why we couldn't just keep this. Like, mm-hmm. again, I, I don't know how many times I got harp on this. Uh, against no effect. If it says against no effect it's on it, it should just be an event. <laughs> yeah, it should sure. just, Ixthian Artifact, they shouldn't be digging up the Ixthian Artifact on Mechatol Rex, and then the whole galaxy can be like, let's just ignore it. Yeah. That's like, what is, thematically, that right. is so boring. Right. Why would that even be an option? Absolutely. Somebody plays Imperial Rider on it. Again, seriously, I have no other, I think however you want to play Twilight Imperium, is a-okay with me. Even yeah. if it annoys me, I think fundamentally it's fine. You play a writer on the against of Ixthian Artifact, and you are not coming over to my house. You know what I mean? <laughs> you are uninvited for life, okay? Yeah. Do not do it. It yeah. is an event. There is no against. You can only vote for, so don't vote. Just let the speaker roll the die. Yep. That should be all. It should be literally. You see the text, it's the artifact, and the speaker is already just reaching yeah, for the die to speakers, just chuck it. Speaker's rolling. <laughs> there's We're nothing not even, else that needs to be said. There's nothing else that happens. No trading. No nothing. Yeah. Event sparks. We do it. Yep. Go. Yeah. Uh, the, the another couple complicated rules is just we decided to make sustained damage more complicated. Uh, just in general, uh, it's now like you can't sustain if you have more sustained than non sustained. It's just like it's a, literally a series of checklists to determine whether or not you are allowed to sustain. If the, the number of capital ships is equal to or higher though. than the number of friendly cruisers and fighters in the engagement, furthermore, a player cannot place a damage marker on a capital ship if there are two or more of his or her damaged capital ships already in the back it's it's literally just like i guess probably people started using sustained damage and realized it's really 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 good uh even though it had a cost like it's sustained damage has only gotten better basically but yeah uh it it, we had to i guess balance it it feels like there's balancing stuff in this expansion and the problem with this era of board games is balancing was always just making things needlessly more complicated was just a yeah. series of contingencies to say like, well, but okay, maybe just it being like this is slightly too good. So let's come up with a three paragraph way to make it slightly worse than it was before. I think it'd be cool if for base game, uh, there was no like zero play testing. <laughs> like if he made it all in a basement by himself. Yeah. And just like maybe he play tested like with himself, yeah. and then Borderlands is him play testing the game. Like <laughs> he doesn't play test it until Borderlands, yeah, yeah. and then it starts getting play tested a little bit. Uh, and then Distant Suns is when you actually take some of that play People testing have and factor it. it in. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, also mines got better just in general like literally we just changed when you the the way mines worked before is when someone enters you roll dice per ship and then depending on what you rolled hits get scored against those units and literally there's a rada this is just a rada for like uh, make the mines a little bit better the dice rolls sucked and mines weren't any good so we made them a little bit better Uh, and the last thing that gets introduced is tournament mode literally just we oh there's competitive play here's our set of rules called empire's end for making uh, the game more competitive or just uh, basically the better version of itself uh, it's like remove seven empty this is where they recognize that there's way too many empty systems and nothing yeah. cool happens <laughs> uh, this is where they lower some of the progression chart requirements so that it's not 30 influence and 30 resources we scale like all of these things back a little bit uh, it's just a bunch of errata and stuff they, they change up 
all of the starting units for the factions. They remove yeah. some cards that are like way too powerful. Yeah, they re- they remove the the big OP cards. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Alien artifact, which is basically Ixthian artifact, stuff like that, is just tossed out. Um, and yeah, I mean, this be- this is like becomes the way to play. What I think is hilarious about it, though, is it does include assassins. It doesn't include propaganda. This this uh <laughs> this expansion introduces two mechanics, and then competitive play is recognized as not included those two mechanics distant suns and propaganda uh even ctp recognizes as like listen people play this competitively and this expansion is mostly not that uh but here's yeah. here's a bone for you competitive folks so an interesting expansion right it kind of goes in both directions it's like here's way more theme stuff for the people who like this game for theme stuff and here's yeah. more like restrictions and balancing for people that like the game for that yeah, I loved seeing this in the rule book because every once in a while we get these uh, these uh, I'll call them smarty pants uh, <laughs> people that come out with their think pieces and they're like, should Twilight Imperium even be a competitive tournament game? Aren't we somehow disrespecting the spirit of the game? When I play with my friends, we all like to wear funny hats and we go to the to the intergalactic council together. Uh no, it was always esports. Even CTP <laughs> knew that it was going to be about prize money. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Big bucks, dollars, my friend. Yeah. All yeah. right. Mastery. All right. We're trying to live in Avalon Hill's shadow, and Avalon Hill had like com- a competitive scene of tournaments, and this is just, we're starting, we're starting the Twilight Imperium open. Okay. The yep. Empire's yep. End open. Yes, yeah. And uh, you know, it I just love that he foresaw that. But to be honest, at this I want to couch that also with the idea that what hubris. You know what I mean? Like we're <laughs> he's basically just released the game. This is like the first yeah. I mean, this is not it's the been first a expansion. year. It has been it's one been year. A year. <laughs> and he's like looking at his overly complicated space game being like people are going to want to play tournament style with this though, you know? <laughs> I sold a thousand of these. <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah this one is a lot of complication remembering every distant sun or propaganda rule is like a major chore uh but you know outside of that whatever it's it's all fine and good uh but that brings us to technically our final expansion i will note of course within all of this there is a fourth uh expansion called armada but it is literally just plastic units that's it it's a it's a plastic pack that uh enhances the game and basically my understanding too is the idea that second edition came out because it was just like we can ship the game with plastic now let's basically it's just an excuse to do that rather than people buying base games then needing to buy armada to have the plastic like yeah i don't know that second edition is going to change much more than that but let's talk about our final expansion the outer rim uh, this one, the big notable thing is we get the L1Z1X and the Nalu. We are now up to 10 factions. This would be the 10 factions that get introduced in the base game of 3rd edition. Uh, these these 10 exact factions. And then expansions to 3rd edition is where we start seeing more new stuff. But it's going to be a decade or more before we get any new factions introduced. And in fact, 2nd edition doesn't bring some of these factions back. The L1 and Nalu do not return, I believe, for 2nd edition. Anyways, we also get a bunch more system tiles. So this is how, not only do we get like more planets to sort of make the game more interesting, but we have enough tiles to have a fourth ring, which is why this is called the Outer Rim. And there's like two game modes you can play. You can play where your home systems are in the same 
spot as they normally are but there's a fourth ring outside of them right so you can kind of expand backwards into very far away territory yeah and then there's the game mode where you start on the outest you know the complete outermost reaches of oh, this the outer outest. rim the outest you start rim. on the outest <laughs> long English is a fun language <laughs> we're on the outest today we uh, are on the outest what? i'm on, i'm in, i i live in new york city which is the outest city in the united states you know what i find hilarious to this uh to this thing too is they they bring in more system tiles for this outer rim thing to have four rings around Mechatol, but they still don't actually print enough system tiles to make the complete outer rim. And the, the, there, there are like, even with like a six player game, there are a number, number of gaps in, the, in that outer rim. You won't have enough tiles to fill it all. But what wow. they say is you use... A buy p- another copy. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just go buy another one. You, you're one shy, so you need to go buy a whole another copy. No, they introduced the idea of minor races. You take a home system tile from one of the factions you're not using, and you put it on the board. Uh, a and you put like a, a starting fleet and units there, and this is like representative of you know the home systems are really good numbers generally speaking, way right, better right. than the numbers of normal systems. So there's like a fleet there you could go kill, and you can just like have the Jolnar home system now, basically, as as this extra thing. Wow. I find it weird that that's never been returned to in any... Like, there's there's no concept of, like, vassals or, or mine... You know, that these other factions are present in the game. A, a Twilight Imperium game nowadays feels like, actually, these six factions are the only major powers in the galaxy and nothing else actually exists at all. Um, and I, I wouldn't mind seeing this concept at least come back maybe not in its exact function but i feel like the other factions should be like present for for games of twilight imperium i feel like we need to play the 25 player canonical game of twilight (laughs) imperium with a canonical galaxy map Uh which actually is in the rpg that just came out check out embers of the buy the twilight imperium rpg embers of the imperium only to look at the canonical galaxy map, yeah. okay? Yep. And somehow, we're going to take that galaxy map, and and we're going to make a 25-player game, and then that will be the final game of TI, and whoever <laughs> wins will be the canonical rulers of the Twilight Imperium universe. You did And it. I don't know how it will work, <laughs> and I don't care, all right? <laughs> I know, ultimately, I am but a mouthpiece, okay? <laughs> Smarter people will come behind me and they will figure out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. All I have to do is continue to talk and make noise and shout and say and the dumbest happen. thing I can think of. And that's speaking, my job. Speaking of the dumbest thing you can think of, there's two new... Uh, we introduced nebulas here, but more importantly, we introduced the gravity rift. Oh, uh, no. Don't, <laughs> do not. You've talked so much smack today. Are you about to talk smack on the gravity rifts in Twilight Imperium First Edition? I'm so sick of your negativity. <laughs> They're all so right? hilarious. I'm about to walk out on this podcast <laughs> if you are about to say that the gravity rifts uh, are, 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 are not an improvement on our current modern day understanding yeah, of the gravity so. rift. The gravity rift has six sides, and those sides are numbered one through six. And when you try to leave a gravity rift, you roll a die. And it's not a one to three, you kill your ship. It's a, if you that roll a one, that would be stupid. What's cool is if you roll a one through six, your ships come out that side of the gravity rift. And just they, that's probably where they end up because they have limited movement anyways. On a seven or 10, they go where you meant them to go. So you have a 40% uh-huh. chance of going where you want to go and a 60% a chance of, whoops, I went over there instead. Whoopsie yeah. doodle. <laughs> yeah. 
So obviously that's cool, and there's nothing wrong with that. And what is your problem? Okay, like the, the, that's my list of questions or of statements and questions. Yeah, it's 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 great. Uh, you just don't know what direction you're gonna go, and yeah. I think that's a lot better than plus one or your ships blow up. Like sure. I don't know, who cares? <laughs> Uh, we also, as mentioned earlier, this is the expansion where we get shock forces. I will note, shock forces, uh, uh, they were called shock troopers in 3rd edition, were already pretty weird. The idea is this. First off, Hope's End exists, and Hope's End is in intended to be the shock force planet. That's something we lost in uh, in POK, basically. Now, yeah, now sure. it's just the mech planet or whatever. But at one point, having Hope's End really meant something, because Hope's End is where you can generate shock forces, uh, because the only other way to generate shock forces is when a ground force rolls a 10, uh, you get to roll again <laughs> to roll a 9 or a 10, and then it becomes a shock force. So you have a 5% chance of a ground force turning into a shock force. And more importantly than that, shock forces are required to be the first ground forces killed in battle. So it might become a shock force and then immediately die in the same round of combat and you never get any benefit from it. Is that percentage correct that it's 5%? Because isn't the and then making it even less likely because you're not it's not like your role is oh wait yeah sorry i said five percent i meant two percent apologies you're absolutely yeah. right it's a two percent yeah. because it is it's a it's it's a two out of that ten percent that you have i don't know why i said right. five it is a two percent <laughs> chance of getting a shock force that will probably immediately die so you might get yeah. to roll uh it might get to roll on a five once instead of on a eight or nine or whatever it's on so very dumb. Uh, this reminds me of a thing in third edition, which was sabotage runs. Remember sabotage runs where fighters could try to kill a uh, a war son, but it was literally like these same odds. It was like a two percent chance of killing a war son, but you have to sacrifice a fighter per chance you give it. Uh, you're getting to do a Star Wars, okay? <laughs> like why you're not, do you have though. such a you sacrifice you are you sacrifice thirty fighters and probably don't do a Star War. <laughs> Uh, but somebody has done a Star Wars at some point, all right? One and they person. did it, and that's good for them. Luke Skywalker <laughs> flew his little his little fighter in there, and and let's blow this thing and go home. You know what I'm saying? And Chewie, <laughs> and, and Chewie, and and I'm actually and seeing no. I'll tell you this. I'm seeing Return of the Jedi, the best of the Star Wars movies, uh, and. And I'm seeing it's it's probably the special edition, so it's been much improved. There's a dance number. Finally, a little bit of music in these movies. Jeez. <laughs> a little song and dance. It, uh, because it's the 40th anniversary of Return of the Jedi, I'm seeing it in theaters later today. Oh, today. Uh, very exciting. Wow. Absolutely the best Star Wars movie. Mm -hmm. They got mm -hmm. little teddy bears in there. Yeah. Uh, Harrison Ford is given nothing to do and has no interest in being in the movies anymore. Which is his performance. Oh my god. It's a lot of cutting to him and he shrugs. Have you noticed that? In Return of the Jedi, mostly what Harrison Ford does is shrug and look a little bit like, meh, I guess I guess we're still here doing this. I, I love that Star Wars has one of the most dedicated fan bases in all of nerddom, and it had arguably one good movie. <laughs> Like, oh no! It was Come good on. one there's time. Two, there's two there's good movies. Two, there's Come one. On. There's one inventive movie, and there's one them. good one. There's oh, one. they're both. <laughs> Come on, Matt. There's there's two good ones. Let's not 
let's not get into hot you're right take you're right you're right here. it's it's There's empire strikes back ones. and last jedi the two good ones no oh my god matt come on the first two Star Wars movies are good. What? What? You don't like the first Star no, Wars? No, I don't. I actually, problem? I canonically do hate A New what? Hope. Anyways, let's move like on. No, let's finish no, talking about no. the Outer Rim. What? What is your problem with A New Hope? I think it's boring it's a- and dumb. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> you think it's what's dumb about it? I just did. I, How do I, you even evaluate? I mean, they're all dumb. It's like yeah. it's it's Star Wars. Sure. That's it. That's what I don't like about Matt. it is that it's Star Wars. <laughs> Okay, Matt. Well, let's just, just for a little bit of perspective here, your job is you talk about a science fiction board game for a living. So guess what? (laughs) For however dumb Star Wars is, you would be like a guy that just talks about Star Uh Wars, except for it's not even Star Wars you talk about. I didn't make a Star Wars. I recognize that. You talk about off-brand Star Wars the board game for a living. Actually, I did say it was bad. I don't mean it's bad. I don't like it. I recognize that I'm just speaking subjectively there but you don't like the you don't like the jawas the jawas no, I, so I actually you. like the jawas i think they're fine but i like you know what i like the ewoks more you like ewoks more than jawas when i was eight sure i don't know if i think <laughs> i think you might have to finish this one on your own <laughs> like i'm not really sure i think i, I need in a there are in the movie for like all of 10 seconds doing anything yeah meaningful. but they're hilarious yeah. and they're great and they got little bright little beady little eyes i'll give this to star wars some of the best sounds kind of across the like in general most of the sounds from yeah. creatures creature sounds and star wars great stuff so good yeah. you got the wilhelm scream and in, in every in every single movie mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, good i've got a bad feeling about this alec guinness you know not <laughs> so understanding <laughs> yeah. see that's like half your personality exactly. right there I like Matt. That stuff. come on that little guy that says i want to do the noise of the little guy that sits next to him but like this is a podcast and i don't want to blow out your eardrums so i'm not gonna, oh yeah yeah i'm not You're gonna talking do about the crumb or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, i won't great. do i won't do maybe maybe someday I'm, i'll do it but i, I won't I'm gonna do be it right seeing now. him gonna yeah. be seeing him later today good for you where were we oh yeah we literally had one more thing to talk about before we <laughs> finished this episode and went on a, on a major tangent. yeah go ahead just throw sure. it in there just uh, throw it in it's there. leaders hey everybody it's leaders and i'll say this much this system is like basically exactly what it is in third edition like they just copy and pasted and changed some numbers around so that they fit in with the new planet values and stuff but leaders are not as we know them in prophecy of kings uh you basically have a set of three tokens that are in one of five generic categories so it's not like you have a Jolnar leader that does specifically this cool Jolnar thing. You have a scientist, and scientists do this these sets of things when they're on a planet, and these sets of things when they're on a ship or whatever. And so you have diplomat, scientist, agent, admiral, and general. And so everybody, it's just basically a way to give all of the factions like a couple extra powers on top of their kits. Uh, but within that too. Your leaders can be captured. So if you like lose a combat to somebody else and your leader was a part of that combat, they capture your leader and can just hold on to it. Just hold on to it. They don't get to use it. It doesn't become their unit. They just have it and they can choose to kill it if they want. They can just be like, haha, I captured your leader. Now it's dead and nothing. Or you can like try to buy it back from them or you can try to retake it basically it's a very weird system that mostly is just like well i'll just kill it like i'll just choose to kill it because i don't want you to be able to recapture it or whatever right but i like the idea to it i mean i think the idea that thematic like people exist you know there are leaders i love what pok gave us like so 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 much more 
where there's like actual real flavor that feels specific to the factions. But I, I wouldn't mind seeing the capture thing come back in a way that makes sense and is actually um, fun rather than just like, oh, I absolutely. captured it. But like the idea, if I could steal like, you know, Mahawk's commander for a little bit and they have to come get it back from me, that's like, that's cool. Don't you think? Don't you think that's cool? Isn't that cool? Oh, I, th- <laughs> I think that's super cool. And and leaders being like a, not not exactly this isn't really trade but yeah 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 but i mean actually knowing us we would make it into trade yeah, well, oh absolutely we? yeah hey come capture my leader here so you can have that we'll do a quick deal so that mm-hmm. you can uh, i'll make that easy for you <laughs> right. uh, so yeah this is definitely a system that we would ruin real fast <laughs> Yeah, there's, there there's no system that the Twilight Imperium community can't just immediately destroy and make a way to haggle for 30 minutes, basically. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point. Yeah, that is exactly the whole point. So we round off our expansions with a, a simpler, mostly logical uh, expansion that is kind of a lot of just ineffective mechanics like shock forces and leaders and and minor races don't have like a big impact on the game Th- this is just the system tile expansion is the way I actually see it it's just like this is good to have in here uh, and everything else is like I don't know we had to justify putting some more stuff in the game so that we could sell you these uh, system tiles yeah so we're done right or is yeah, that yeah, it? yeah that's so it you, that's, you want... that is all okay. of that's all of first edition so, yeah okay cool so a new hope here's what i think here's the i i i just want to defend it real quick i i don't know you didn't listen to my anything i said I about leaders i don't know You're what just you were preparing about. your own a new hope I monologue it does not matter i just want to say a new hope as or a we're talking if we're talking about star wars we're talking about blockbuster cinema we're talking about movies that are aimed at children sometimes include adults sometimes don't Sometimes yep. they don't care, you know? Yep. I think Return of the Jedi is an example of perhaps maybe the children being over-prioritized mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. But A New Hope has about the most perfect pacing I can think of for like a summer blockbuster movie. Okay. As in like the sequence of like establishing the characters, establishing mm-hmm. the world, mm-hmm. getting us into... A, a set piece okay uh get like like establishing what the final act is going to be i just don't know if i can think of a movie like even empire strikes back doesn't have the pacing of a new hope okay what i'm describing to argue you is argue with me what i, I will argue here's, with me now here's my argument nine-year-old matt didn't grab a vhs tape of a new hope and go oh i can re- uh, uh, this pacing is really admirable what no, I'm, but, just, but, I'm really but impressed you, by the pacing okay i'm not you don't have to vocalize something in order to feel the effects <laughs> I, of it though, as a nine-year-old was bored by a new hope so it's, what's that for the pacing i found it a boring movie that's so crazy to me that you found the original movie that so yeah how did how 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 could a child find a new hope this is why we have to podcast together because <laughs> I have, I have, I have a room. If I had a house, there would be a room uh-huh. where I would just have all of your statements would just be like <laughs> up on walls with like red yarn connecting them. And I, my whole thesis would be like, if you look at everything Matt said, it doesn't add up to a person. Mm-hmm. It adds up to something more or less than that. And I have not decided yet. Yeah. But uh, so you were as a child, you were bored by a new hope. I thought I was, the stormtroopers I was bored were cool. You know what I thought was cool? What the fifth element. 
Oh, don't do this to me. That's mean. <laughs> You're mean. That's really mean. I'm not kidding though. Why like are I, you I'm doing sorry. that to me? No, we don't. I'm not making you go on a thing. No, we don't have to it's do... fine. Well, no, 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 no. I don't want to. So I don't I, want so... to. I don't. Oh, you just... don't. Then why did you bring it up? I'm, I'm just saying that's I'm, that's literally the movie I watched over and over again as a kid. The, my space movie was was, was multi element. Yeah. Yep. Because because it was colorful because it has more fun, fun yeah. uh more fun like monsters and creatures is mm-hmm. that it and and goofs and and weird characters and and weirdos and i mean that movie's hilarious i don't I, I hate to break it to you but that's a funny movie everyone is like bringing their a game i argue i don't know star wars is pretty hilarious actually though like the the trash compactor monster that thing is hilarious <laughs> the little eyeball the little eyeball <laughs> guy you know, how do you not like that <laughs> I, that's fine it's fine that scene always like made me really where... uncomfortable though that 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 scene like i did not like watching as a kid oh i loved stuff like that when i was a kid i just i also just love the scene where r2d2 and c3po are on the phone with them while they're mm-hmm. in the trash compactor mm-hmm. that is just they're dying like, yeah 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 and c3po's like all freaked out and yeah. stuff that's like comedy gold to sure. me but yeah. Bruce Willis in Fifth Element is like such a good straight man. It's so funny. Oh, I love Bruce Willis. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I love Bruce Willis. And it, my problem with that movie has nothing to do. You just don't like the with... blue haired lady. <laughs> I, the blue not, tentacle no, lady. The, I, I think in general, I think the, the costumes are like really fake looking. And I think it's weird that that's chill. Like, yeah. I just think the costumes are like it. It looks like. Like Star Wars, if they didn't really care to go the extra mile on like having the art department feel like a world, instead it just kind of feels like a like a very well executed version of well, what do we got lying around here that we can throw into this movie? I think it feels like That's, a world. I don't know. And, I, and I push I, back on that. I think I think it feels like a, a goofy world, but it feels like a world to me. I think it. Uh, yeah, I can't and maybe believe it's you're that, doing this right now. This is a long episode I already. Care. I, don't I have care. like 14 prelims reports to do because I have to catch up from last week. Hey, this this is a three and a half hour long episode. I didn't. I didn't ask you to go on a Star Wars tangent. <laughs> all right, but you you fired some <laughs> shots from the hip. I also like, you know, and I I hate to talk smack on somebody because I'm sure he's like a nice guy or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like Chris Tucker has never worked for me in yeah, like I, any I, movie. I, I liked Chris Tucker. I was a Rush Hour kid. I was a, yeah. I liked all that stuff. Yeah, I'd, I I I'd watch Rush Hour two for a podcast like a year ago, and I could barely make it through yeah. that movie. I don't know what it is. I mean, like I I'm sure. Like I'm sure if I watched like an interview with Chris Tucker, I'd be like, oh yeah, he's he's fine. But like I his. I don't know. It just like it really kind of grinds on me. Rush Hour. Know. Rush Hour changed uh, the legality of prop money. Money, pr- prop money in movies uh, fundamentally changed because of Rush Hour. Do you know that? It's a fun little wow. fun little movie fact. That movie changed prop the prop business forevermore. I wonder if Star Wars: A New Hope changed anything Probably about not. movies. It's hard to know. <laughs> you know, if maybe it did. It it may have. But you're saying Rush Hour had like a props thing. That's cool. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm maybe a new hope changed some stuff. <laughs> hard to say, really hard to say. But yeah, mine was a fun fact. Yours is a known variable. That's not. <laughs> that's not what I'm going for. I want to thank our weird bears: Big Hell, Cappuccino, Squeamy Shimu, Pope Billy the Second, Brassbird, Cabal of Soul, Kalu, and Daryl Jadim Jedi, Carnal, Necrodice Twice, Kindred Spirit, Alice, Lord Raddington, Emlashevsky, Sunfax, Absol, Ricky M44, Rwise, and Spirit Thing. And I want to thank our Teensy Sprouts: Baldric, Kraken, Frank G, General Pith. My son is also named Bor, Uncle Batty, the Wild One, and Vince Hunter. 
I have a wonderful on-topic homebrew review for you. Let's do it. This one is from Addict Unraveled, and Addict Unraveled looked at the first and second edition progression tracker and said, I think that's still kind of cool. I don't think it should be the entire game. Saw the same issues we saw with it, right? Where it's like, well, now right. you have to do all of the same things every single time. Uh, and they came up with a way to sort of implement it into fourth edition. And I, I want to I hear your thoughts. So here's the idea. Uh, Addict Unraveled has slightly modified the Warfare strategy card to now be called Conquest. It does all of the things Warfare does, but it also allows you to immediately advance on the galactic progression track if you fulfill the requirements. And the idea is this. In the status phase, everyone can progress on the galactic uh, progression chart in addition to scoring objectives. Objectives exist. Right. Some of them have been pulled out of the objective deck and basically recontextualized onto the progression chart. Uh, the progression okay. chart is uh, control six planets in non-home systems, and then control six planets in non-home systems, then own four or more structures or two tech and two colors, right? So a little bit of like build up something, either structures mm -hmm. or tech. And, and every single one of these ones that I bring up, that objective has been removed from the objective deck, right? So right. think about that being like taken out. Uh, the next step is Empire. Control more planets than each of two of your neighbors. And again, this is a late game thing, right? Push boundaries is like much harder in the late game than it is in the early game, right? So the, like a, right. a relatively difficult thing. Then spend eight influence or spend a total of three tokens from your tactic and or strategy pools. And then the third thing is to own two unit upgrade technologies. That's a pretty easy task. And then the final way to win the game off of galactic progression is to have your flagship or war sun in another player's home system or mechatol rex control planets that have a combined influence value of at least 12 control planets that have a combined resource value of at least 12 and own three unit upgrade technologies this doesn't exist like the pre previous galactic progression chart where you have to have everything from the previous things it's just whatever your next step is right so okay you have to build up to this big final step and you can win via that or by getting to 10 victory points. So if the objective flop keeps coming out bad for you, you can just instead start investing your time and energy into these known variables that are consistent every single game, and you can win one of two ways, essentially. So that that is more or less Addicted Ra Unraveled's uh, pitch for incorporating it as a sort of alternative win condition. Um, similar to like... Uh, in third edition, there was an objective you could flimp over that was like an incredibly hard, like control two different people's home systems, you win the game, right? This is mm -hmm. like a, a mild variant on that. Um, so I think it's interesting. I think the balance would be incredibly hard to figure out, especially since like these are yep. just like known variables, right? Like, okay, all anyone ever has to do to keep you from doing progression is like holds you off of 12 influence on planets or, or, or whatever it is, you know? Um, I think that last step is so extraordinarily difficult and stoppable that... Uh, you end up in the same position you end up with just objectives anyways, maybe. But I like the intent. I think you could just play around with the numbers a lot and maybe get to something pretty cool. Yeah, I. How, what if what if the track was also random? Like, right. why does the track even need to be... Mm -hmm. Like, if it's all just going to be based off of the victory points anyways, why not just fill in the track with... Flip objectives, new yeah, just each flip game objectives or whatever. For the track so that 
so from the outset just... you're saying like start a game here's the cur- progression chart for yeah. this game yeah. those objectives are taken out of the deck that's kind of interesting yeah because the 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 problem i got with it is it sounds like addict unraveled has a little bit of a hakan bias because i oh, noticed sure. a couple hakan biases in <laughs> the progression chart uh push boundaries hakan's yeah. good at that right uh having resources or influence at the end of the game hakan's good at that yeah everyone's good at three unit upgrades so i'm not even sure uh, and also it's the return of two tech and two colors but to be honest I do like the idea of getting two tech and two colors out of the deck so right. that it can't bother people well, in that arena anymore. And it's an either or, right? In that one, it's either do two tech and two colors or right. have four or more structures. So I like, I especially Straight like out. that idea that there's like this optional thing to yeah. it of like you yeah. can still, because if it was just locked in completely to like do exactly this, then it would be, um, you know, way too easy to stop or whatever. And so again, to come back to the other idea within this is that conquest card, again, I wouldn't like this if it was just progress during the status phase, right? That's way too slow. There's no way you're going to win the game any faster via progression. But the idea that Conquest gives you an action phase opportunity to pull off this stuff too is pretty neat. Um, however, I do think Conquest as a card is a bit out of step because like, what's the thing you're going to need to do, right? The, the thing you need to do for the final swing of the game is like take big systems, Warfare right. lets me pull a token and take more big systems. But if I have to pop Warfare to do my progression mid-round, right. that's not really doing anything for me, probably. I mean, it, it might help me do that, like, second-to-last step, which is mostly spendies, right? Have some tech and spend some money. I do right. that real quick, and then my next action is to take stuff so that I'll win in the status phase or whatever. But, yeah, I don't know. I I, I mostly love the idea of playing around with this. I think it would be cool yeah. to just tinker with it and see where the numbers actually fall. And I, I think I agree with you, Hunter. Just flip flip objectives into the galactic progression chart, and that's like a sec a separate thing. There are two there are two ways to go about this. Uh, if, if anything, it's like saying, "Hey, we like that Age of Empire variant where all of the objectives are revealed at the beginning of the game. What if we had our cake and ate it too? There's objectives that are slowly revealed that are one way to win, and there's objectives that are revealed from the get go, and you can sort of play both sides and see where you end up at the end." Here's here's what I always hate though about, and this is definitely. I've made this point before, and I'll make it again, and I'll make it again, <laughs> again. When you make scoring easier, you make speaker more important, and I yep. don't really like that. Right. So if anything, I understand people's like inclination to be like, oh, there should be more scoring opportunities, but when they're in, when they're tracked like this, when yep. they're like kind of about tempo, then like, okay, then that that speaker token movement gets emphasized more and yeah. more and i already think it's too important i will note uh at the very i don't know if this perfectly accounts for it but one thing is the galactic progression scoring order is reverse it's the opposite of your scoring order for objectives oh. so there is a little bit of the idea of i could be in bad speaker order and be crushing it in the galactic progression chart game i, I could go that way with it uh if if this round if i've been playing both odds and at yeah. the end of the game i'm in bad speaker order that could work to my advantage because now i just lean harder into the galactic progression chart as opposed to the objectives that is interesting so yeah i think that is like a good idea yeah um i wonder if there is a way to kind of plop that out though and reincorporate it in uh in a different way Mm -hmm. uh because mostly because like i think what puts me off a little bit is the idea of like the more opportunities you put out there, also another issue I have is like 
a balance of the game. Like I feel like the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in mm -hmm. that sort of situation. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting that. That might that this might be. I'm definitely convinced to try it. Yeah. Actually, at that yeah. detail. Yeah. Um, okay, it's time for an agenda phase. Mouse stains, mouse stains. I always, we interact with you uh, a lot on Twitter and you, I've seen you in person, man. I love you, buddy. You were at our Gen Con live show. I don't know how to say your name. <laughs> mouse stains asks, <clears throat> how do you explain this game to someone who has never played before? And I ask this today, Hunter, because this is a two-part question to me. How do you explain Twilight Imperium 4th Edition with Prophecy of Kings and Three Codices? to someone who has never played before. And how would you explain Twilight Imperium 1st Edition with all of its expansions to oh someone God. who has never played before? <laughs> I don't know if there's a difference, actually, yeah, yeah. as far as how I would explain it. I, I, think, I think summing it up as... Well, first, I always look for... There's like a series of things I'll ask. Like, have you played Cosmic Encounter? Have you ever played... <laughs> uh, or if they, haven't, they don't play board games, like, have you ever played Civilization? Yeah. Uh, yeah anything any kind of connector if i can't find anything like that then i basically just say it's a big space game and it's really really complicated <laughs> because people always ask me like when i'm like oh like like someone will be like oh what do you do for work and i'll be like ah can we talk about something else <laughs> uh, and then they'll be like no really what do you do and i'll be like oh i have a podcast i talk about this one board game not board games in general yep, just one just and they're one. like how do you talk about just one board game and lately i've been getting defensive about it yeah because I realized this thing the other day, um, but someone would be like, oh, how do you how do you just talk about one board game for a podcast? And be like, if I told you I had a podcast about chess <laughs> or poker, you would leave me alone. Yeah. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense that you'd be able to talk about that. Well, let me tell you something, buddy. Twilight Imperium is way more complicated than chess and poker combined. Whoa. All right. Shots so back fired. off, everybody. <laughs> There's your and pitch. Mostly, That's how you would explain it. Way more complicated than poker and chess combined. Yes, way more complicated than poker and chess combined, and it's in space. <laughs> that's that's if, how I would explain if it. If I were differentiating first edition, I would say, and a lot of bad things will happen to you over the course of the game. Like a lot of game-ruining, wild things are just going to happen to you, and that's the fun of it, is seeing how bad things can happen for you. Yeah, really the only difference between first edition and fourth edition at this point on, on an abstract level, obviously the details are very different, but yeah. the devil's in those, let's stay away, <laughs> uh, is it's fightier. I feel like yeah. TI first edition is set up yeah. to be a fight. Right. I mean, it's it's not, it. the political stuff is there, the trade stuff is there, mm -hmm. but it's not like a, like you can't just live your whole life in those elements of it. You pretty yeah. much have to accept that at some point it's going to come to blows because there's not enough to go around there's not enough for a player to win without taking somebody else's stuff basically yeah. yeah definitely well okay this was a fun one a long one and stick around because after this break there's a uh, you know there's there's plenty more show actually because i've got a whole chunk of prelims report to throw at you i didn't get to fit it in last week so i'm trying to make up for lost ground I i'll also give a quick little prelims update there are six games remaining but uh, if anybody's ever been a part of the prelims or semis before knows it's those last few games that are the hardest to make work because you're dealing with all the people with the most difficult schedules to work around yeah so yeah. we have like two or three scheduled for this weekend and those last three we're just trying to get in there okay so the, the, yeah. the prelims are going to take probably a couple more weeks and then hopefully we will we will immediately kick off the, like scheduling for the semis i'm basically now at the point where my brain is like i think the semis are just in june 
uh, yeah. uh more or less like i, I don't i don't want to we don't I don't want to rush the scheduling of the semis. That's always been a disaster in the past right. when I like, we, can't we have that. one week turnaround. No, no, no. We're going to spend the month. So at this point, semis are in June, which mostly means I failed. I failed this year didn't to make, make the yep. semis go any yep. faster. Nothing worked. We didn't worked. make the tournament faster. <laughs> we thought we might, and we did not. Yeah, it's true. There's always next year. Just kidding. Next year will be slower, just so everyone right. knows. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, so you can true. rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can find our website, spacecastpeaceturtles.com for information about our Patreon, our Discord, our merch, etc. Uh, we are hoping to, we're going to be at Gen Con this year. Keep an eye out and ear out for that. We will have a, we have a live show that's actually on sale now. You can go buy yes. tickets to our live show for Gen Con. Uh, so go to the Helium Comedy Club uh, Indianapolis website, and uh, I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes as well. But you can buy tickets for our show at Gen Con. Yeah, we'll be at Gen Con. And if, if you're going to Gen Con, we'll, we'd love to see you there. We'll be playing. Uh, we probably won't play any TI, but we'll yeah. be hanging out with people that are playing TI. Yep. Uh, and we got the live show, and hopefully we'll be doing a few more uh, other things as well. Um, but yeah, this was a this was a fun one. Uh, it was long. Um, and just real quick, <clears throat> number one, Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> number two, A New Hope. I think these are kind of, I mean, there's really no other way to go. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like, uh -huh. sure. it, just to be honest. Yes. Now, on my third one, I think I'm going to lose everybody. My number three is The Phantom Menace, and I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> explain why. My number four is probably where I would put Last Jedi. Yeah. It's obviously the most interesting of the sequel trilogy, but mm -hmm. I also think like it alone can't yeah. save the problems with those three movies. Sure. Um, number five is where I would put Return of the Jedi, which I'm seeing tonight. Number six, let's go as go ahead and say Force Awakens. I think it's so. kind of the most boring one. But it's, um, it works, right? It feels like a classically yeah. trained movie. <laughs> it's, it's it's charming, but it's kind of it's kind of it's a little stale. Yeah. Uh, number what is that? Seven, seven. I'll go ahead and put Revenge of the Sith here because of them choosing to <laughs> have him kill the younglings. That scene made me cry. That scene made me really? cry in theaters. Yeah, I don't know why, but I, I, it's not like I loved that movie. But that was like one of the few times as a teen that I cried in a movie. I just thought that was wow. so much. Like, oh my god! So you're like, I don't, man. You're you have I no emotional attachment to that you. at all. You I, just thought it was ridiculous. I, I, the second you see the shot where yeah, yeah. his lightsaber lights <laughs> up, I thought I literally yelled. You're go home, Revenge of the Sith. You're drunk. <laughs> this is insane. This is a movie for children. Yeah. What are you doing? Well, we kill. It's supposed to be like a it. fun adventure, and they're like, anyways, these yeah. these younglings Hunter, are all gonna die. It's like, what's going on? You need to um, you need to read more uh, young adult fiction with EJ and I, because uh, turns sure. out kids stuff goes hard plenty often. <laughs> well, I'm not allowed on that show until I have a child, um, <laughs> which I'm working on it. Uh, okay, so number seven was Revenge of the Sith. Uh, number eight, uh, I guess, will be Attack of the Clones yeah. and, the, uh, and Rise of Skywalker is... It's just the you worst know what? Actually, ever. I'll give number eight to Rise of Skywalker Why? And, and, and Attack of the Clones can be dead last. I've only seen Rise of Sk Skywalker I haven't one seen time. it, so I don't actually get to talk, but I just I don't saw want it, to. <laughs> I saw it in theaters, and I will say it has... Like mildly psychedelic properties. Yeah, yeah. Like well, it it's is got the best pacing of any movie. 
it is a manic like fever dream of a movie where it feels like jj abrams is in like another room and he's just like tossing stuff through the uh -huh. door at uh -huh. you he's like have this take that he now. literally like had this? a notebook of notes and he read them off to his writing team and his writer's team wrote them in order and that became yeah. the script. It, it feels like a it's a bulleted list of a movie and no one crossed anything off. <laughs> At no point did someone say like, we should probably get rid of this one. They were like, we're keeping it. They're yeah. having the whole hog of every idea we've had, basically. Um, so I will give it respect for that. And Attack of the Clones is, yeah, it's fine, actually. There's nothing wrong with Attack uh -huh. of the Clones, uh, really. Uh, there's nothing wrong with any of the Star Wars movies. There's it's Star Wars. Yeah, Who cares? Yeah. You yeah. know, and th there's no reason for these movies to be important right. anymore. There was the first one that broke new ground, and the second one uh, built upon what the first did in an interesting way. Yeah. And that's about as good as it gets. I don't know. Right. Like right. a lot of movie franchises. Like after you after you get to like the third entry, it's like there is no point in us being here anymore. It's yeah. just that this makes money now, yes. so no one can stop. That's basically. how I feel about the what was that first like off topic one? The one where they are gonna blow up. They're trying to find oh Rogue it's One. Rogue One. It's based off of a single line of one yeah, of the movies of the opening. I crawl, hate that yeah. movie. It's a great. It's a well crafted movie, and I hate it because if you it doesn't make any sense i tried to get my it wife really to watch it. i wanted my wife to watch it she's never seen a single star war and i was like this is my experiment will this movie make a lick of sense to my wife and she we didn't finish it because she was so it like so fundamentally bored and confused by it <laughs> yeah it is i think it's kind of a bummer that that movie didn't work though because it's it's pretty weird yeah it has a very strange vibe to it yeah uh and it's like I mean, you know, Disney uh, is allergic to experimentation and they hate it. Yeah. Uh, so, which is not, you know, not great. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like that movie was like sort of an experiment and I'm yeah. not defending it. I'm definitely not saying it's good, yeah. but it, it at least it was interesting. Yeah. And I'll never I'll watch it, it again. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Space Cat's Peace Turtles, and thanks to Ben Prunty for the use of his music. You can find more at benpruntymusic.com and benprunty.bandcamp.com. Pax Magnifica, Bellum Gloriosum. Hello and welcome to your prelims report. I'm not going to actually do 14 games for you right now, even though that's how many games we uh, need to catch up on, because next weekend's going to be lighter, so I'm going to add some of them to next week. So here's a handful of games. Game 14 brought to us by Seto Kaiba. Round 1, first two objectives were Intimidate Council and Push Boundaries. Ghosts use IFF to help all but Muwat score this round, a spicy negotiation where Necro gave Ghosts one trade good and alliance to try and score a hit in the wormhole nexus with a single cruiser versus a carrier destroyer and fighter for gravity drive ended with Necro using Titan's agent and killing all three of Ghost's units gaining gravity drive and scoring Intimidate Council along with their 
secret objective to be neighbors with everyone. Diplomacy was not picked. Necro, Titans, and Empyrean score Intimidate Council. Argent and Ghost score Push Boundaries. Third objective is to populate the Outer Rim. Round two, Empyrean takes Mechatol. First action, turn one. Argent pulls Shard of the Throne. Titan pulls Obsidian and Maw of Worlds and uses it to get Light Wave. Necro takes Imperial and does not double score, but unlocks Hero during the round and uses it on Big Lore to gain five trade goods and integrated economy. Argent and Muat score Intimidate Council. Necro scores Push Boundaries and remember to use Daxiv. Empyrean, Titans, and Ghosts score Populate the Outer Rim. Fourth objective is Amass Wealth. During Agenda, Swords the Plowshare kills half of all infantry and Necro gains Airy Hollow Lattice. All players support swap directly across the map. Round three, Ghost Hero swaps Mechatol with the Supernova, placing Mechatol in the equidistant between Ghosts and Muat. Empyrean scores push boundaries. Necro, Argent, and Muat score populate. Ghosts and Muat score amass wealth. Lead from the front is the fifth objective during Agenda. Enforced Travel Ban destroys seven PDS. Necro picks up light wave deflectors, and Empyrean drives the debate and draws Crown of Thalnos. Round four, Titan scores three action phase secrets. Spark Rebellion, fight with precision, and become a martyr off Argent, retaking their home system, and takes the shard off of Argent's home, bringing them to nine points with Tomb of Amphidia in their play area and three relic fragments. They pull Junior. Muat takes Mechatol and talks Ghosts out of playing insubordination on them, which would prevent their score. Muat and Ghosts score push boundaries. Argent, Titans, Necro, and Empyrean score a mass wealth. Argent scores lead from the front, double score with Imperial. Stage 2 objective is centralized galactic trade. Ghosts is on nine trade goods with Malice. Political stability is played by Argent and sabotaged by Necro. The end of round four scores. Titans at nine. Argent at 9, Empyrean at 8, Ghost at 7, and Muat at 7, and Necro at 6. Round 5, Muat is on Mechatol with Imperial. Ghost has leadership and 9 trade goods plus Malice. Much wind slaying and various paths are talked about, but Argent wins turn 1 by taking Hope's End off of Titans to regain the shard. Congratulations to Fallen Waffle on the win. Game 17 was written by Henry from the TI Junkies. Round 1 opens with a very friendly game around the table. Hakan refreshes everyone for free when they pop trade, nor do they block Titans on their way to a round 1 custodian's point, and Creus use their wormholes to make Intimidate Council easier for everyone to score without table tension. Round 2, not only does Shard enter the game in Argent's possession, but during the agenda phase, a stage 2 is revealed, spend 666, via the incentive program agenda, introducing a plethora plethora, a plethora of new scoring options early into the game. Otherwise, a Gamma Wormhole appears adjacent to the Hakan home system, opening up later Windslay opportunities, and the Creus IFF continues to get passed around strategically. Argent scores a bonus point after taking Mechatol with Imperial. Round 3, the table heats up. Nasroka launches attacks against both Argent Flight on Semlor and Creus at the Wormhole Nexus. Empyrean takes Mechatol with Imperial this time and continues to set up their web of mechs across their slice. Though these mechs are stripped of their ability during the agenda phase. The agenda phase also provides points again with both Creus and Hakan scoring secret objectives. With a scorable two-pointer, we end round three with Empyrean in the lead already at nine points, making round four almost certainly the last. Round four, naturally the Imperial Windslay discussion begins the strategy phase and the table is tense. Argent negotiates a deal to ensure their initiative is lower than Empyrean, taking diplomacy and eventually playing it at home, telegraphing Argent's path to victory this round. Hakan takes Mechatol Rex with Imperial and with the potential to hit nine points on their next turn. Titans swiftly denies the point by taking Mechatol. Nasroka attacks Argent to ensure an Empyrean Windslay does not simply hand the game to the birds. Nasroka also takes the Hakan home system while they collaborate with Ghosts to ensure or no Empyrean status phase victory. All the wind slang ultimately succeeds, and round four ends without a winner. 
Argent, Empyrean, Ghosts at 9, Hakan at 8, Nazroka at 7. Unfortunately for Ghosts, Wormhole Research passes without hesitation and devastates their fleets after they use every ounce of energy to take Empyrean's win. Round 5, Titans becomes the new target with 7 points, control of Mechatolrex and Imperial. They lose their home system quickly. Nazroka takes Shard from Argent in exchange for a Ghost ceasefire to ensure Ghosts doesn't come for the Shard point on Malice. Empyrean makes one last bid for Hope's End to take Shard but fails. Argent comes back for their home system, giving Nazroka a point off become a martyr. It's the second Argent become a martyr in a row, by the way. Weird. Nazroka quickly becomes the biggest threat. In a climactic final play, Nazroka has to decide to ceasefire ghosts in either their home system or malice to defend their shard. After much deliberation, this decision is made with a dice roll, and ghosts attack Nazroka home. Nazroka holds on with one infantry remaining. Nothing else can be done, and Nazroka scores Engineer a Marvel to win in round 5 status phase. Congratulations to Bartholome on the win. Game 18 is written by Jasper, the Arborek, and Empyrean, and a Hylar walk into a bar. We've already swapped promissory notes, we're both gonna be rich, proclaims the Empyrean. Well, yes, says the Arborek, but the actual objective says two attachments, and I've drawn all of them. Prelims 18 was a game of big names, but rather passive factions. Empyrean took custodians, Winu and Jolnar were happy with four structures, and Arborek had a monopoly on attachments. Extra and Calaris fell behind quite early in the game. A Winu keeping up with the scoring leaders was not acceptable to the table, so they took action by sending Extra at Winu's negotiated attempt to score attachments in Arborek while Calaris took on the Winu forward base on Lodor. In a long, drawn-out conflict which included an infiltrate on Lodor and a home system annexation attempt, the Winu lost what little massive fleets they ever possessed. Thanks to the hard-to-score objectives and a long and brutal leadership stall by Jolnar, it seemed like the game would be heading to a tiebreaker after the fifth round, but Empyrean devised a gambit that gave both Jolnar and Empyrean a shot to win before such tiebreakers would happen. The deal was for Jolnar not to stop Empyrean's point scoring in exchange for Empyrean giving up their commander to Jolnar and fly a ship into the Winu home system where Parlay had thwarted Jolnar's early attempt to conquer the weak. Their second attempt went much better, and Jolnar won on the one. Congratulations, Starcy. Game 19 is written by a hint. Round 1 had some fancy moves as Visionest used the first pick on a Sarl in a pool without an obvious best agent. Still ending up with second pick, Shrew was used to copy Nalu's agent to make double teching very cheap, enabling her to grab custodians in round one with Cruiser 2. This would be the only successful established control step on Mechatol the entire game due to stall tactics being used to place three free mechs which survived invasions by both Titans and Nazroka. It looks possible in round four for Asarl to pull off a speedy victory, but after revealing their secrets to the table, three annoying status phases proved it impossible. Their support partner Barony, although unable to take Mechatol, was able to use Imperial to pull ahead in tempo. Half the table's chances in round 5 depended on a scorable stage 2, but 11 planets was too tough for many factions, and the table readied for a tiebreaker. In the round 4 agenda phase, Barony as Speaker was able to convince the table to vote 4 on the mystery agenda from covert legislation, which turned out to be checks and balances. This enabled Barony to work a deal with their trusty partner Asarl, where they would get leadership and Asarl would get Imperial. Round 5 was somewhat of a stallfest on all fronts, with a few stifled attempts at action phase secrets by Barony. No one managed to get to 10, so the players went to the agenda in anticipation of a four-way tiebreaker. However, at the start of the agenda phase, Barony revealed a freshly drawn dictate policy, which instantly won due to three laws already being in play. Congratulations to Savant as Barony Aletnev in its finger! 
Game 20 is brought to us by Big Al, a high delta curve in factions, and Purple Puma drafting 6th pick just to be in purple seat made for a great table setup. Two upgrades and five ships indicated a slow scoring game, but the players wouldn't be delayed and killed round one in well under an hour with only Yin, L1, and Empyrean scoring. Round two sees three tech skips, and Yin and L1 score this tricky objective with Calaris and Sar scoring five ships with Sar on Custodians. Round three adds flagship, and the table is off at a canter. Some planets taken and some attempts fail. Winu grabs Mechatol and finally scores in status phase, plus a support swap with Empyrean. Round four, we see spend five trade goods, giving Winu a theoretical round four finish on Imperial, which they are unlikely to get. Checks and balances, though, lends its support to a longer game, with sad planet Earth scoring three laws off its election into play. Round 4, Planet Earth takes Mechatol from Winu, and all score with 4 of 5 stage 1's effectively spendies. But Bob C is Calaris, who opted for Imperial Round 3 and Round 4, having judged their odds 50-50 down this route. Relic dive after the table had passed, landing Shard in a 1-11 chance with Obsidian being just as acceptable, scored a total of 6 points in Round 4, including support for the win, and taking down the fastest tournament game, sliding in just under 4 hours and 40 minutes. Game 21 is brought to us by Portmandia. Round 1 started with Control 3 Empties and Intimidate Council for the objectives, and while the table maintained a cooperative boat-floating attitude for the grand majority of the game, a misunderstanding between Nazroka and Excha led to an early tense diplomatic moment where Excha moved forward with taking systems that Nazroka thought were agreed upon, denying Nazroka a round 1 point. Nazroka counterattacked early, and Extra was relegated to just a small handful of tiles around their home system for the remainder of the game, never finding themselves in contention. Winu played a quiet but incredibly effective game within their own slice, never even glancing at Mechatol Rex, which Argent had held since the beginning of round two. With staying on a great tempo and a support swap with Argent, it appeared that Winu might just win the game without ever once stepping foot into Mechatol. However, in round 3 and 4, Argent was driven off Mechatol by Jolnar, who then subsequently lost the Rex to a very strong Calaris fleet. Winu had been quietly building a large fleet next to Mechatol. With Winu, Calaris, and Jolnar all at 8 points, Winu took technology in round 4, enabling them to research a second unit upgrade and fleet logistics. All Winu would have to do for the round 4 win would be to take Mechatol and fleet into their hero to score two unit upgrades and an Imperial point for the victory. But the Council's fighters came to the rescue, rolling a whopping three tens on four dice, giving the Council a full six hits in round one, devastating Winu's fleet and their chances for a round four win. Round 5 was very tight with every faction except Extra in striking distance. Jolnar, who had Speaker thanks to Calaris passing the Speaker token to their right on an agreement that Jolnar could take any strategy card except for Imperial, took Imperial in a betrayal, giving them a chance at an action phase win and denying Calaris an easy point off Mechatol. A moment of controversy put a pause in a tense round 5, when a few turns after the incident, Nazroka realized that Jolnar had exceeded their fleet capacity when they took Hope's End back from Nazroka, who had taken the legendary planet and shard earlier in the round. While waiting for a moderator, Jolnar and Nazroka agreed to re-roll the ground combat, as Nazroka would have had a lone damaged mech that would not have been destroyed by a bombardment hit. The two players re-rolled a ground combat of one Nazroka damage mech versus three damage Jolnar mechs with the hope that the Jolnar would score a single hit, settling the question of the extra Dreadnought, which Jolnar removed once the error was realized. However, the lone Nazroka Eidolon stood victorious after the alternate history playthrough, and a moderator joined to the table that disagreed about how best to proceed given this turn of events. The moderator decided the original play should stand, as the mistake was not realized until several turns in and play continued. 
Jolnar passed shortly after, and the remaining contenders engaged in a back-and-forth chess match, with multiple players trying to claim five edge systems for the Stage 2 and the win. In the end, no one was able to reach 10 points in status, and Nazroka, Winu, and Jolnar entered into a tiebreaker, each at 9 points, with Argent deciding, or forgetting, to score a Stage 1 objective that would have also brought them to 9. In the end, the seventh player proved to only test the Winu's patience, as Winu was able to claim the first tiebreak objective with only three structures outside of their home system, giving Kraken the win in its pronounced celery. Game 22 is written by Clawforce. Round 1 saw five non-fighter ships and three empty systems come out as objectives, starting the game off as it would continue for its entire run with lengthy negotiations over every single move. Calaris and Empyrean came to an early deal over the Dark Pact, a deal that would enrich both players substantially over the course of the game. Everyone was able to score with the exception of the Calaris player. Round 2 saw four planets with the same trait come out as the objective, only exacerbating the issues with table play and leading even longer, more drawn-out negotiations over moves and planet swaps. Play slowly and painfully continued, with Empyrean able to take Custodians and Nomad was able to gain three attachments across Atlas and Semlor, resulting in two tremendously valuable planets to be reinforced. An extended agenda phase saw a veto of representative government, passage of a rearmament agreement, and a political censure with extensive rider play by Asarl that ended up with Calaris censured. Round 3 saw the Spend 8 resources objective revealed, and with Calaris attempting to take Imperial, they were public disgraced. Play again continued with lengthy negotiating and few surprises as Arborek managed to take Mechatol and play Imperial, and most players scored. The only sudden aggression came from Jolnar, taking Calaris off an empty system to deny them that point. Round 4 saw another spend objective come into play with a 3-3-3, and the players once again negotiating for much of the round. Arborek denied much of the table trade, and the Calaris Imperial pop got most of the table a full hand of secret objectives for the first time, as there was no Imperial selections in rounds 1 or 2 of the game. Calaris and Empyrean again found the table striking into them and threatening their board states. The round dragged along once again, only finishing the fourth round with five minutes left on the clock, four players at six and two at five. Round five saw the spend 16 resources objective revealed, which seemed to most benefit Nomad with a seven, a five, and a four resource planet in hand and heavily reinforced. Everyone felt stuck in glue and spent much of the round arguing about who could theoretically win. Arborek managed to make it to the Imperial pop, scoring two points and securing a swap from Empyrean to move to nine. Empyrean considered a win make of Arborek, but was shamed out of it by the table. As a reward, one of the leaders in the shaming process shattered the Empyrean home system and ended their game. Exhaustion began increasing mistakes as fleets shattered themselves against well-set defenses. Jolnar considered taking the Calaris home system, but was talked out of it, so Jolnar instead shattered much of Arborek's home defenses to score Darken, but didn't take the home to avoid risking the gift of a tenth point. Arborek went for Asarl's greatest ship, but came up shy of the hits necessary to score the 10th point. A lot of relative maneuvering occurred and set up what most expected to be a post-11th hour tiebreaker. At the very end, however, Asarl surged into a gravity rift to destroy a single Jolnar destroyer and score Brave the Void. Then, during status, Asarl spent 5 action cards for a secret, and as a final masterstroke, used their agent to copy the Calera's agent spent commodities as trade goods, and spent 16 and won the game with those final two points putting them at 10. Congratulations to Cody TCT for the win as a Sarl. Game 23 is brought to us by Brassbird. The table was somewhat annoyed to see the objective flop of lead from the front and intimidate council. 
During the draft, the seventh player had selected for them the faction pool that had been dubbed the Sad Corner, and most of the players had their work cut out for them. The very first turn of the game had Nalu moving forward to Lodor, resulting in a very consequential moment as they drew the Dyson Sphere. This was the first sign that the table was about to have a Nalu problem. Despite the difficult objectives, Barony and Titans managed to lead from the front, and Nalu and Exchoff found their way to Intimidate Council. The game showed that it would not be giving anyone a break as Corner the Market flipped in the Round 1 status phase. From very early on, the table set a tone of respect and positivity that would last all game long in spite of the 7th player encouraging violence by revealing control objective after control objective. At the top of round 2, Nalu took custodians with a strong enough force that none of the players would bother stealing Rex away from them until the late game. Deals were debated and struck, and the players steadily figured out how they would navigate the objectives. Extra showed that they were not messing around this game as they scored both a public and a secret to unlock their hero at the earliest possible opportunity. The other factions scored but showed that they were on a slower tempo than their early leaders, Nalu and Extra. Things got even more imbalanced in the agenda phase when the table failed to pass regulated conscription, which may have been the only check on Nalu's constant fighter production out of their souped-up forward dock, and the coveted Minister of War made its way into Extra's scaly hands. The next objective was revealed to be populate the Outer Rim, and so the table kept on keeping on trying to manage their relationships while keeping on tempo. The most significant moment of the mid-game was during the Round 3 agenda phase in which mutiny was revealed. Nalu, still in the lead, had just purged their hero to collect promissory notes, meaning they were holding several political secrets. In a series of disarming negotiations, Nalu was convinced to let people into the vote and hold on to their political secrets, and then they immediately had their representative assassinated by the L1. Every faction besides Nalu got their bonus point, massively shifting the point tempo for the struggling factions and giving everyone a fair shot in the late game. It was around this point that the commentators started debating whether or not they would see around 6. It had been somewhat assumed, given that Corner of the Market was a dead objective for everybody besides Extra, but the extra juice from Mutiny changed the calculus of that entirely. The endgame kicked off with the first Stage 2 reveal of Patrol Vast Territories. All eyes were on the empty systems, and the Titans were the first to start making claims, but did not have enough plastic to hold the systems well enough. L1, who had been struggling all game with their token economy, kept on chugging and purged their hero to move dreads to the other side of the board, where they could have reach on the number of empties needed, and were the first to tangle with the Titans. Sarl had trouble all game with their secrets, but had drawn the Stellar Converter and decided to use it on Extra's edge planet Archon Vale in an attempt to slow them down. Extra made some flashy plays with their secrets and Minister of War and got to 9, showing their path to be 3 edge systems to win on the 2. Despite a valiant effort, the fights they chose on the edge did not go in their favor. Barony was next to show their winning path on the 1, sneaking into several empties in spite of their game-long lack of plastic. However, a crucial misstep left them one system short of the Stage 2. Nalu, most confusingly, was absent from all the drama. Early in the round, they told the table that they didn't think they had what it took to win this round, and decided to pass early, even refusing to Zayu for another forward dock build. It was lucky for them that Extra and Barony didn't find the win, because that enabled the round 6 the commentators could not believe they were seeing. The next stage, too, was to have structures on five planets outside your home system, but the round was a foregone conclusion, as Nalu took the one, stalled the entire table out of gaining tokens, and waltzed their way into five empty systems needed to lock up the game on the zero. Congratulations to Jiriki for finding the win, and a sincere thank you to the entire table for keeping the good vibes alive.
And finally, for this week's episode, Game 24 brought to you by Elspeth. An uneventful round one resulted in half the players scoring erect a monument and all players working towards scoring four structures, but none getting there yet and Cabal being big sad that they couldn't dock Evera since it was the DMZ. Nazroka's soul speaker back to soul who took tech for round two, with Nazroka taking leadership for custodians. Celebi... And by that, Elspeth means K. Aldry, but the, it's the whole thing. Not being in this game meant that chat began coming up with more Pokemon names for Matt and Hunter while Nazroka took Custodian. Soul took Rex from them and Cabal extorted Nazroka for a Relic Frag and BMF to not take their now empty home system. Populate the Outer Rim caused a bit of squabbling, but no real fighting as players worked together in a fairly friendly round to score. In the agenda phase, x was politically censured courtesy of having tons of influence as Speaker, and then took Imperial, locking in a massive Imperial round with double scoring, especially easy with Make History and having Mirage and Primor in their slice, a Rex point, and a secured swap with Cabal, their most threatening neighbor. Meanwhile, Sar found the Obsidian and took politics to secure an Imperial round in round four. Support swaps were had all around Extra now far ahead at seven. They controlled the agenda phase thoroughly, forcing Galactic Crisis Pact onto Imperial to let the table roll new secret objectives. With lead from the front looming as their only remaining secret objective, Sar let Imperial go to Seoul and took leadership instead, popping it on the first action to avoid getting stalled out. As their second action, Sar activated the extra home system. The table thought this was a slay attempt, but instead, Xcha didn't shoot PDS and retreated, allowing Sar to peacefully score Dark in the Skies, presumably as payment for keeping their home system and Sar popping leadership early. With two secret objectives remaining in hand due to Obsidian, Sar moved swiftly to attack Cabal, scoring Betray a Friend from having Cabal's alliance. Sar passed with lead from the front secured, and the table speculated about what secret Sar might have scorable. It was down to become a martyr, being neighbors with everyone, or discarding five action cards, of which Sar had six. The table went to great lengths to prevent the neighbor objective, successfully making Argent no longer neighbors with Sar. They discovered it wasn't BAM when Sol decided to take a potato in order to potentially score their own secret objective. In the end, however, Sar discarded five cards and cruised to a round four victory on the one. Congrats to Squeamish Emu as Sar in doot doot, and congrats for the first victory in doot doot! Good night, everybody.